Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 126, where we will be covering chapters 20 through the epilogue of Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson. We finished the book. We did it. We finished a whole nother book. I'm really excited to get into this coverage with you. Do you want to lay our spoiler policy out there for them? Absolutely. So the spoiler policy is simply that I have not read past now the epilogue of Gardens of the Moon, Liz has read ahead and is, knows sort of more of what's going to happen in the world. Um, so she is the spoiled party. I am the unspoiled party. Nonetheless, we will not spoil anything past the end of this book. So nothing from future uh, updates or blog posts that Steven Erickson wrote after the end or interviews or Anything like that, just the material here presented in this book. But we're going to spoil the shit out of this book. Absolutely. So get ready. Absolutely. Next time, we're going to be reading the prologue and the first chapter of Dead House Gates. That's right. Pretty exciting. That's how we started this one, and I think this one started off well. Well, I'm really excited to get into this coverage with you. How did the end of the book hold up? I think it held up really well. I think I think the ending was good. I I ended up rereading it like three times because I had to. Uh, because the first reread, I got to the end of it and I was like, "Holy shit, what happened?" Like, <laughs> like the I, who I thought was the big bad wasn't even the big bad. Right. Like, I mean, <laughs> just a lot of stuff. Fucking dragons and weird houses. And- I mean. A lot of stuff going on. <laughs> it's a lot going on. Which, by the way, completely in line with everything else we've read in uh-huh. this in this book so far. So, Absolutely. Um, but no, it was good. I enjoyed it. Well, I want to start off with the poem that's in the beginning of this book. And this book, well, the last three chapters, this book is called The Fet. And it makes me really happy because I love writing the word fet every time i get to draw that little carrot over the e it makes me inexplicably happy it's one of those little things in life that i can't even explain why i like it so much but every time i write the word fet i would just go (sighs) inside oh you're the kind of person that crosses their sevens (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that anyway so this book the fet starts with this poem the flaying of Fander, she-wolf of winter, marks the dawn of Gedarone. The priestesses race down the streets, strips of wolf fur streaming from their hands, banners are unfurled, the noise and smells of the market rise into the morning air, masks are donned, the citizens discard the year's worries and dance across the day into night. The Lady of Spring is born anew. It is as if the gods themselves pause their breath." Faces of Darugistan by Mascarel Gemre. Now, I said this was a poem. It actually almost sounds like it's more from a, a nonfiction book or a travelogue about Darugistan. And I like the way that it kind of reminds you of what's going on in the city. Because the timetable has slowed down considerably from the first couple of books where we were jumping every couple of Mm -hmm. years. And now it's, we've been kind of crawling toward this 
this climax, which is happening at this party. And the party is happening on the eve of this big holiday in the city. So uh, multiple things converging. Correct. So, I, And I like the symbolism is that this is a, a New Year celebration. It's also similar to, you know, some of the, the kind of old, like, druidic rites that we've seen in our own history, which is like, you know, kind of killing the winter so that spring can be born. Uh, it's the Geteron, the spring goddess is born, and Fander or Fanderay is kind of this ancient ascended beast who represents winter. Um, and they kind of literally chase her, you know, will metaphorically chase her out of town. Um, So it's just kind of a reminder of what's going on amidst all this chaos, all this underlying chaos. There's also this huge citywide think like Mardi Gras type party going on. So we'll get into chapter 20 in this chapter. Everyone gets ready for the fete. The year of moon's tears is about to kick off and our crew is ringing it in with intrigue corpses, fly costumes, and an epic giant dragon battle. So metal. Marilio and Ralic head to Lady Simtal's party with murder on their minds. On the way, they run into Krupp, who just happens to have scored an invitation for himself. Marilio tries to confront Krupp about being the eel, so Krupp is forced to give him a magical roofie in order to make him forget. Crocus and Absalar continue their romantic evening surrounded by corpses, while Lorne sneaks into the city and meets up with the bridge burners. Raced the Jagu tyrant claws his way out of the earth and immediately puts the smackdown on a bunch of motherfucking dragons in case you were wondering how overpowered he was going to be. Right? <laughs> Pretty overpowered. So, chapter 20 starts with another poem, and if you are willing to let me just keep on reading words at you. Do uh, it. I do think this one sets sets the tone really well for this chapter, too. It goes, It is said that the matron's blood, like ice, brought forth into this world a birthing of dragons, and this flowing river of fate brought light into dark and dark into light, unveiling at last in cold, cold eyes the children of chaos. Has a very Genesis vibe. Yes. And there's a lot of talk about dark versus light. And what yeah, I really yeah. like mm-hmm. about the way that this book handles that is it's it's not automatically assumed that light is the good guys and dark is the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And again, this hints at a whole just another layer of of mythology and world building um, that we haven't even uncovered yet. So does that it's this sort of Genesis you know, the darkness said, let there be light, and then there was light sort of thing. It means the Tysandee are kind of like the angels of this world, according to that sort of poem. But, like, only if there were, like, angels living on, like, the top of a mountain in central California. Like, there were wool caps in summertime and drank expensive <laughs> coffee. I'm just, I'm just saying... The they are like, very bored with life, aren't they? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's their main problem. Yeah, right. They're the, clearly the hipsters. <laughs> Although we're just too cool for everybody else. So talk about the, the calendar for that Darugistan uses. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, so they have this, um, in the city, they've got this giant, massive stone disc in the Majesty Hall that marks the cycle of the ages. And it was a gift to the city a thousand years ago by someone named Ikarium, who was possibly a Jagu. 
And every year, you know, this this disc revolves and then it comes up with what the name of the next year is going to be. So uh, this year was the the year of the five tusks mm-hmm. and the tusks refer to uh, the boar who is an ascended beast called Tenorak. Mm-hmm. And his tusks are themselves named hate love laughter war and tears that year is being replaced by a year that's called the year of moon's tears Oof, yeah a little on the nose on the yeah. nose i hear that moon's tears can cure gout <laughs> and racism so who do you think are the five tusks they stand for hate love laughter war and tears i, I mean it seems to me like there's a correlation between who are the five uh, sort of chief agents of the previous year. Hmm. I, I, I mean, I, I came up with a correlation. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, so I sort of thought, you know, the tusk of hate stood for shadow throne. Okay. Uh, the tusk of laughter stood for opon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tusk of war stood for Anamanda Rake. I'm okay. sorry, for uh, the Empress. Yes. The Tusk of Tears stood for Anamanda Rake. Okay. And the Tusk of Love stood for Dujek. Oh, I love that. That was the that was sort of the way I looked at it. The only problem with this is that like I really had a hard time coming up with love. Um everybody else I have like one of the ascendants or gods sort of in that category but i couldn't come up with anybody from the ascendants or the gods who would represent anything even resembling mm-hmm. love which i think is an, is an interesting statement in and of itself yeah absolutely so we start off this chapter with marilio and Ralic heading to the fet and they bump into krupp and marilio has this conversation with krupp yeah actually Ralic wasn't there at this point well, Rollick had kind of gone on ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Marilio mm-hmm. is, they're both en route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Marilio is thinking about how weird it is that Rollick showed up with this stab wound that had healed, and mm-hmm. now he's apparently impervious to magic or something like that. He runs into Krupp, and he's like, hey, jackass, basically, I know you're the eel, like... Stop messing us around. This is a really funny scene. And one thing that I, I picked up this time that I don't think I had before was the this like sort of comic gag where Krupp like, you know, Marillo starts grilling him and Krupp like is dabbing at his face with his handkerchief and then yeah. he, he rings it out and like this huge stre- <laughs> improbable stream of water just starts pouring yeah. out. Of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of funny parts in this in this interaction, you know. Marilio bumps into Krupp. Krupp, like, throws his box on the ground. Its Mm -hmm. masks spill out everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know that that was also on purpose. And there are three masks inside, one for Rollick, one for Marilio, one for Krupp. Now, it's interesting, and I haven't entirely picked up on the significance of this, but, like, they start at this point hinting about Krupp's mask, but don't reveal to you what it is. Mm Mm-hmm. Until much later, uh, maybe not even until the next chapter. Um, but there's a lot of hinting around about about oh his oh it isn't it cheeky his his selection of a mask oh it's so clever it's so funny I haven't quite figured out what that is but anyway um, so really it was like why you know why do you have this third mask uh, Krupp says well of of course I'm going to be coming uh, Marilio says you're not Krupp says. 
Do you think Lady Simtal would ever show herself if her longtime acquaintance, Krupp the First, was not in attendance? Why, she'd wither in shame. And Marilio says, damn it, you've never even met Simtal, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, Krupp the First, the first of what? <laughs> the first Krupp, the first I, of his name. Clearly. Uh and then this is when he says the, uh, you know, I know who you are. And all of a sudden he's wringing out the towel. Um, but he says, I'll not deny it then. It is true, Marilio. Krupp is Lady Simtal connivingly disguised. You know, <laughs> if he were alive today, he would definitely teach improv. Right. He'd be a comic magician, you know, p- punching up his magic tricks with all of his little jokes. And then he ends up saying, but, you know, really, my relationship with Lady Simtal is pristine in that we've... <laughs> we've yet to sully our relationship. Yet to sully our relationship by actually, by actually meeting. meeting. So either way, Krupp has been able to finagle an invitation. And it's it's inconvenient for him to be confronted by Marilio. And he manages to be able to wave his hand and kind of befuddle Marilio mm-hmm. into forgetting what they were even talking about. Yeah. But you can tell, you know, when we find out more throughout this chapter and the next couple chapters, you can tell that, like, the disguise of the eel is, it's breaking apart. Yes. It's beginning to fail, you know, and Krupp is realizing it, you know, and this is, this is a risk for him because Marilio's going to eventually figure out. Right. You know, th- this little charm that he cast on him is just a temporary thing that Marilio will eventually be pissed that he he charmed him. (laughs) So we get a scene next with Baruch and Anamanda Rake. Anamanda wants to go to the ball. (laughs) And Baruch is like, are you sure that's such a good idea? And Anamanda says, it's cool. I'll wear a disguise. No one will know. This seven foot tall? You know, eight feet tall with, with, uh, you know. Coal black skin. Coal black skin and, and perfectly white hair, you know. And I'll blend right in. I'll blend right in. (laughs) Never mind the whole, like, walls tend to crack when I walk into a room. And and my giant two-handed sword that sounds like the groaning of a wagon's wheels, you know. I'm I'm the center on the Dark Elf basketball team. (laughs) It'll be totally fine. He's the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of the Dark Elves. Anyway, yeah, it was, I, I, the whole thing was funny. And when they're talking about it. You know, Rake also says, uh, if this event is as publicly known as you suggest, then the Empire's agents will know of it as well. Should they wish to cut out Darugistan's heart, they'll have no better opportunity. Uh, Baruch barely repressed a shiver. Extra guards have been hired, of course. And of course, you know, it's like we hired five dudes. Who happened to be agents Happened to be the the same agents. You know, that's pretty funny. That got me. It got mm-hmm. me right in the uh, in the irony feels. They also discuss the the changing of the year, and uh, Anna Amanda re- reacts negatively to you know the name of the year, obviously. And now, uh, but they, they they talk about Icarium as yeah. well. Yeah, there's a little info dump actually where they talk about Icarium and his gifts. Uh, they talk about um, they talk about Osric, who you know is Osirk. And they talk about Trell Mapo, mm-hmm. who definitely flew an X-Wing fighter for the Rebellion. <laughs> I 
I mean, that is that's a Star Wars name. <laughs> that is definitely ever, a Star Wars name. I didn't realize it before now, but you're yeah. right. So that's just think something to put a pin on that those names keep on coming up and they are going to be important later. And then again, we get reference to the eel. Baruch says, the eel lord, Darugistan's master spy, a figure without a face. A masked face, the Tystandee reminded him. If my suspicions are correct, Baruch said, the mask won't help the eel one bit. So, bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. so again, just more evidence that it's uh, it's wearing thin. And then they have a conversation about Mammoth. Uh, and Mammoth comes out and he says, uh, you know, escaping from that inescapable tomb, from the clutches of that um, legendary godlike tyrant guy, not not so tough after all. <laughs> and I'm immediately like, he's he's been corrupted. So like, mm-hmm. there's there's no there's no way you get out of so that no unscathed. There. <laughs> yeah, no way you get out of that unscathed. I didn't even seem to notice me. It was weird. Yeah, I just kind of walked away. It was no big deal. You don't set that up. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't put a mammoth on the uh, mantelpiece in Act Two Point Five and and not uh, corrupt him mm-hmm. in Act Three. I mean. That's cool that you were able to catch that. Yeah. So Baruch also realizes who Crocus is and the fact that yeah, the coin yeah. bearer is Mammoth's nephew. It puts that together. Yep. Mm-hmm. So then we have Lorne sneaking into the city past Circle Breaker mm-hmm. and thinking she is going in unnoticed off to find the bridge burners. But Circle Breaker does see her and manages to get himself positioned to where he can also be at the Fet. And it seems like, again, what I, what I really like about this, he's like, well, this is a stroke of luck. And anytime something like that happens, when you know that you have a character who is the physical manifestation of luck, it makes you wonder what's going on there. Is this something that Opon is putting together? Yeah. Or is there some kind of force that's even kind of greater than all of the ascendants that's working? Yeah, because I, I was thinking about that, too. It's like this sort of opportunity to like, like, it's an afterthought, and yet everything works out perfectly for him to to be able to be there mm-hmm. you know lorne finds the uh the bridge burners and she finds them you know sitting at a table uh playing their weird card game but only she tells us for the first time that they're actually playing the game with a deck of dragons right because we've seen them play we've seen them playing it a bunch but it's never they've never bothered to to describe oh yeah by the way right they're playing it with a deck of dragons. And her reaction tells us, well, and, and the reactions of other people in the series that have had toward these cards, the deck of dragons, you know, makes us think of, of a tarot deck. Yeah. But this is not something that you can get in a in a t-shirt shop on the boardwalk somewhere. <laughs> you know, you can't just, not anybody can use a deck of dragons. You know, people, um, they're not used lightly in this world. And the fact that um, the fiddler is using them makes him wonder if he has some kind of talent with them as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there's a, a bunch of references to the cards uh, that I thought were were quite telling. Yeah. So the first is the Virgin of Death. It says the Virgin of Death had her teeth pulled, uh, causing me to ask, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a card in the Deck of Dragons specific to Sari? Or, or the ver- or the a, a sorry like Virgin of Death figure mm-hmm. shows up often enough mm-hmm. that it's in the deck of dragons, but the the deck obviously predates sorry, right? 
So I just, I don't have an answer for that. It's just a, a peculiar sort of thing. There's not an ascendant called the Virgin of Death. Well, I, I not think that we know it's of. not, not that has been specifically mentioned before. The characters in the deck are the same, but the cards themselves change subtly. And the people who are kind of manifesting them or representing them at the time tends to change. So lately, Sari has been the virgin of death, kind of standing in for that card. But obviously, now that Cotillion has been expelled from her, she's not the danger that she was. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a little on the nose. Uh, we also have the captain of light. So, mm-hmm. I mean, who do you think is the captain of light? You know, Peron? Right. Maybe Dujek? I don't know. Uh, and then Fiddler, of course, throws a card towards Lorne after telling her she's got to ante up like, mm-hmm. you know, 10 talents or something. And it's the throne, but he deals it to her upside down, mm-hmm. which it becomes, of course, a huge premonition. Right. So it, it appears that Fiddler does have some sort of talent with the deck. So all of these characters who just kind of seem like the sidekick characters, I like how they are constantly being revealed to be more and more complex. There's a lot more than meets the eye to all of them. Yeah. But she's here to confront Whiskey Jack, so... And Whiskey Jack is done taking her crap. Yeah. So she kind of gives Whiskey Jack a hard time for losing sorry, and he's like, pretty much like fuck you for not telling me anything about any of this. Yeah. And, you know, she kind of comes in and blusters like she wants to take charge and she realizes pretty quickly that he's, there's nothing really for her to do. Whiskey Jack is taking care of everything. Um, He's, he's moving forward to take control of the city and she kind of ends up letting him go. But before she leaves, Whiskey Jack is like, Hey, we got a tunnel. <laughs> You want to try it? Huh? Huh? Quick Ben's back there like, be cool, man. Be cool. So is this, it seems to me that this tunnel leads to the forest behind Simtal's garden. No, I mean, Whiskey Jack tells her this tunnel emerges into another house. And that's, from it, you can get into the Daru district. That's what he says. So then we go to Absalar and Crocus. And I really only had one comment in this section. It's a quote from Absalar where she says, I'm feeling all right. It's as if something inside is keeping things together. I can't explain it any better, but it's like a smooth black stone, solid and warm. And whenever I start getting scared, it takes me inside. And then... Everything's fine again. Aw. It's Regalay the Seer. Yeah, and we uh yeah, and we learn more about this later. Yeah, I thought it was funny just how Crocus and Absalar are sitting there watching the festivities, hanging out with a corpse. It's like two teenagers, oh, but there's a dead body. And just watching Absalar struggle to come to term with these sets of memories that she has or doesn't have, or she remembers things she shouldn't and she doesn't remember things that she should. And, um, you know, Crocus just kind of finds it all a bit of a drag. 
just he's he's like yeah are we supposed to like this kid yeah going on here really deep being a dick (laughs) yeah i mean on the other hand what 16 year old boy oh yeah can get a little self-centered oh yeah for sure i mean it's definitely an, an example of that there's no question about that i mean this whole sort of thing, you know, that's going to happen later with him. Like, I've got to confront mm-hmm. Shalice Darl for what? It's entirely about his ego. It has mm-hmm. no other, it's nothing other than that. You know, and Absalom is just like, okay. You know, like, <laughs> but they're not alone. Uh, not only the corpse, uh, but also Surratt, one of the Tyson D, is following uh, them around. The crocus is always being followed around mm-hmm. uh, by somebody who's trying to assassinate him at the, the beginning of the section. And then at the end of the section, he's getting followed around. Uh, but Surratt is following him around, trying to assassinate him. And then we get this. Two sharp points touched her flesh, one under her chin and the other beneath her left shoulder blade. The Tystandee froze. And then she heard a voice close to her ear, a voice she recognized. Give Rake this warning, Surat. He'll get only one, and the same for you. The coin bearer shall not be harmed. The games are done. Try this again, and you'll die. You bastard, she exploded. My lord's anger will be in vain. We both know who sends this message, don't we? And as Rake well knows, he's not as far away as he once was. Took me a long time to figure out who this was. Yeah? Yeah. Who is it? It's uh, representatives of Prince Kaz and Caladan Brood. Yes. There appears that there's trouble amongst the Genabacus resistance. I had to go back to like chapter 10. Right. To hunt, to hunt this down. Right. Well, and it's interesting that earlier in this chapter, uh, Animander brings up another conflict that he had with, uh, not with Caladan Brood, but with you know, a friend of Acarium's and Caladan Brood had to break it up. And this is all like 800 years ago. So you think about just the centuries of history that these uh, characters are carrying around with them. Yeah. Um, Well, and also that, you know, this is not the first time that Sarad has been trailing Crocus and then been, been waylaid. Right. We thought it was, and it could have been somebody in Krupp's Mm -hmm. little contingent who cracked her on the head, but it seems much more, it seems pretty improbable that it would mm-hmm. have been me sneaking right, up on, yeah. on Surratt, you know? <laughs> so, so it makes a little bit more sense. And I think I may have even said something um, at the time, but, mm-hmm. um, but it, this makes a little bit more sense that it's like specific, you know, agents who've been sent after Crocus to right. protect him who know what they're dealing with when it comes to the Tice Dandy. Right. And know how to deal with them. So then we have a scene where Raced, the Jagu tyrant. Yeah. Wakes up. Man. It's all this build up, build up, build up to this dude. I was not anticipating that we would actually get in this, in the head of the Jagu tyrant. Right. And dude, he's a peach. Oh my God. Yeah. He's like the spirit of like Ted Bundy and Satan and Fran Drescher. <laughs> he's like he's like a Nick Cave song come to life. <laughs> he's also kind of got that like 
vibe where like it wasn't so much a barrow as it was his grandmother's basement <laughs> and like you know he's got like a pet snake and a quote real japanese sword like <laughs> oh my god that's so true that's the that's the vibe i'm getting from this dude the right vibe from the jagu tyrant yeah is it not yes right oh i remember that guy raced isn't he the guy who replaced your contact solution with lysol <laughs> oh man that was great yeah he, he's the guy who paid for our entire senior class to go on a fishing trip and we all got on the bus and then he drove it straight into the ocean 37 people died but we caught our limit <laughs> he punched me in the face once <laughs> three continents sunk into the ocean <laughs> you know like that yeah that's that's the vibe i'm getting off raced i love the the jagu in general i think there's such a unique element in this world this like juxtaposition of inherent strength but compulsive avoidance of power to the point where they says talks about in this section how the jagu fear community um, pronouncing society to be the birthplace of tyranny of the flesh and of the spirit. So they're so opposed to anyone having power over anyone else or trying to exert control over anyone else that they shun community entirely, you know, even denying themselves the benefits of having a community. So I think that's so neat. And then whenever someone does come along, really like the basement dweller, like the worst of the Jagu yeah. who decides, you know what, I want to, I want to enslave people, you know, fuck other people. Um, the rest of the Jagu come together to, uh, to, to trap them. Yeah. And that's what happened with raced. He was, says he was disowned by his, his mama because he started deliberately trying to shape power and the other Jagu abhorred what he was doing and they came together to imprison him. So a lot of race's power is stored in this acorn, the thinnest. So he sets off to try and find it. And he's, I mean, just in case you were wondering, like, whether he was getting built up, uh, you know, and unnecessarily, he is super powerful. He pretty much climbs out of the earth and he, like, you know, clenches his fist and mountains explode. We're talking, yeah. like, that level like, just... of powerful. And he says that he drives his fist into the earth far enough to find the sleeping goddess who is young to him and makes her bleed. And then magma starts pouring out of a distant hill. I, yeah, it's I, I, that was another one where I, I wrote, uh, you know, I put some notes down. Shall I wake you? He whispered, not yet, but I shall make you bleed, you know? And I'm like, who is this sleeping goddess? Like, this place is lousy with slumbering deities. We got so many sleeping deities, we can't even keep track of them. <laughs> like I cannot, for the life of me, figure out. There's just like ambient there, in the air. I mean, you, you dig asleep. deep enough, you're going to stumble across a sleeping guy. Like, <laughs> there's just tons of them. I mean, who, I have no earthly concept of who this is. Well, the Malazans... Am I supposed to? ...call this the... the the year, what well, they track their calendar by something called Burns Sleep. Hmm. So that's something that's been mentioned before. Interesting. All right. And then five dragons, five whole dragons. That's a lot of fucking dragons. It's a dragons. lot of dragons. It's not one or two dragons. It's five. It's five dragons. dragons. Come after this dude. 
but we're in like, you know, we're at the end of the first book and this is not even really ultimately that major of a fucking character. Right. Most fantasy books that I've read, like sometimes a dragon mm-hmm. is like the care, the oh, thing. That's it. Like that's it. That's like, it. We got five of these fuckers just flying around. We only bothered to name one of them. <laughs> So Raced warns the dragons that he can't enslave them. So instead, he'll have to rip their hearts from their chests. So he calls them soul taken. And we've heard that term a lot before. I'm not sure if you was really explained what that means. No, it's it was it's been thrown around a bunch. It was thrown around also um, when we were visiting itty bitty little baby Tattersail. It got thrown around there, too. So a soul taken in in this universe is sort of like a shapeshifter basically Mm. okay so they're not dragons all the time you'd guess Uh, yeah and and of course we see more of that later with animander right anyway dragon jagu battle it's pretty awesome Um, it doesn't end at the end of the chapter. At no, the end of the chapter, just, yeah. we're still wondering what is going to happen next. Yeah, it's just now it's just Michael Buffer in the middle of the ring. Let's get ready to rumble. So in chapter 21, the long awaited fete begins. And there's a little something for everyone girls in slutty costumes, bloody duels, magic acorns, and Animander Rake ridiculously trying to disguise himself. <laughs> Ralic kills Turban Orr, and it's totally badass. The bridge burners have no idea what's going on. Krupp passes out on a table full of pastries, but not before sending Circle Breaker happily into retirement. Crocus kidnaps Chalice to Arl, because of course he does. So this might be my favorite chapter in the whole book. Of all of the different epic battles that we get, the Jagu Tyrant versus Five Dragons... Animander Rake in dragon form versus this other dragon. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these big, epic, you know, conflicts that we have. The duel between Ralic and Turban Orr is my favorite fight of the whole book. I mean, it absolutely is. I read it several times every time just because I'm like, that was so badass. (laughs) It's pretty badass. I just, I really love this, this small human story taking the forefront amidst all this epic world changing continent changing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That this little human story of these friends trying to right this wrong that was done to their friend. Yeah. Gets the spotlight. And for me, that's the part I remember the most about this book after, you know, the first time I read it and it was part of the reason why I, I kind of hung in there through dead house gates just because of these little human moments that tend to come up. Yeah, for in sure. Steven Erickson's work. Do you imagine that Animander Rake trying to like disguise himself <laughs> at this party? Is it is it a little bit like Shaquille O'Neal wearing one of those tiny little oval masks? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like oh, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm just here for the chips. <laughs> Only if Shaquille O'Neal had a giant again two-handed sword that causes a a sense of would, unease in everyone who walks by him like he brought would, the sword it would be like shaquille o'neal bringing a basketball right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Like. yeah i mean i guess 
and a copy of Shaq Zan. I guess Animator Rake Indeed, is not the type whatever. to just prop his sword up in the carriage and like leave it there. But still, I'm like, it, no, it's a little. It describes him walking into this party, and I'm like, he brought the sword. I know. I know. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but we open up with Lorne burying the thinnest in Lady Simtel's garden. Yeah, it turns out uh, that that's what it is. Uh, and then immediately begins to lose it. Yeah, she is losing her shit. Absolutely. It says she realized with sudden comprehension that she was breaking down. I'm like, yeah, girl, we knew that five chapters ago. The adjunct was cracking, its armor crumbling, and the luster gone from its marble grandeur. A title as meaningless as the woman bearing it. Kind of a cool revelation, though, because as she has stated several times... The woman who was named Lorne is dead, uh, le- leaning in to the title of the adjunct. But now, even that is not enough to keep her sane through all the shit she knows she's doing. Mm-hmm. But even despite that, she makes the choice to go after Crocus. Yeah. She realizes that sorry has slipped through her fingers, but Crocus is still a possible target. Yeah, but yes, she's she's carrying out the mission of the adjunct to the bitter, gnarly end, mm-hmm. despite the cost. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's interesting. It is, and it makes her end so poignant. And I'll talk about more about that when we get to her last battle. But just every time that we see Lorne deliberately make the decision to turn away from what she feels is right and to kind of bury her own conscience a little bit deeper. I don't know. For me, it makes her more sympathetic. Absolutely. It'd be so easy to just not like her as as being the bad guy. But when we watch her just struggle and just kind of take the next easiest step rather than the, the one that she feels is right, um, I can identify with that. And yeah, it definitely makes her. I, I would agree. I, I think it makes her more sympathetic. It doesn't. It doesn't make her a better person, right? Um, you know, but particularly when you see sort of how it all ends, you can You kind of can't help but feel sorry for the woman named Lorne, who died all those years ago and became mm-hmm. the adjunct. You know, um, there's still there's still a lot about this. A lot more about this character. I wish I knew. Uh, and I just don't think we're going to get it. This idea that she keeps telling herself, the woman named Lauren is dead. The woman named Lauren. Not really, though. I I know. (laughs) Like, that's her convoluted way of avoiding responsibility for what she's doing. I'm not really doing it. It's the adjunct that's doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, is this weird, twisted way that she is able to justify doing these unspeakable things for the Empress. Yeah, it's like a mantra, but like... But like a mantra of evil. <laughs> like right. It's like you don't actually become someone else just because you yeah. declared that you're someone else. Like, it's still you that's taking responsibility. Well, I think the part of it, too, is like one of the questions I've always had about the character of Lorne and the, and the adjunct is like, other than that fucking sword and the title, what is she? She's an orphan who was rescued by the Empress, pulled out of the slums, and by the age of 20 was like the king's hand, you Mm -hmm. know, like running around doing the Empress's bidding, but also a total fucking badass, like like at a supernatural level, like 
you know, she's confronting like really difficult, you know, uber powerful odds mm-hmm. and just like smacking them down. But, but you don't have the sense of like a quick Ben where, mm-hmm. you know, quick Ben has gone through all this shit or a whiskey Jack who, you know, who's gone through all the shit. Oh, and by the way, whiskey Jack also would die in a fight with Lorne. Yeah. Quickly. Like, so it like there's it's she's an int- she's a captivating character but mm-hmm. I still don't really understand you know and I think it is that mystery that lack of understanding how this person came to be mm-hmm. that makes it so sort of compelling and you don't really get a good answer not in this book not in this book no so we finally go to the party and we were watching uh, guests arrive. Well, um, right, right. I don't know if it, I think it's right before the party. So there was one other note I had, Krupp. Yeah, I, because it's, I believe Krupp when he's in the um, the inn before he goes there. He's he says, going in, he's going to the party. Oh, okay, he's on his way. He says uh, he felt certain that he had covered all the potential threats uh, regarding the lad. He's talking about Crocus now. Right. Or rather, someone was doing a good job of protecting Crocus. That much the pattern showed him. He experienced a nagging suspicion that the someone wasn't himself or any of his agents, and he'd just have to trust in its integrity. And, it, of course, it's Caliban right. Brood, as right. we we learned uh, we, well, we don't actually learn until chapter 23. It just shows the limits of what Krupp knows as well. Like, True. he can tell quite a yeah. bit, but not everything. And so then we also have Crocus and Absalar heading to the party so he can confront Chalice to Arl. I, again, I just keep writing down, I, I don't I don't get their dynamic. Like, are we supposed to to like Crocus, or is he just supposed to be, you know... Not a very sympathetic character. He's not. I mean. But certainly doesn't treat Absalar very well. And she's just kind of. Maybe this is just my like. Remembering my tender 15 year old heart. What that used to be like. Okay. I mean he's. Whatever. He's not being like. Evil. He's not cruel. He's just kind of. He's clueless. Yeah. And really self-absorbed. Yeah. and, And rude. Like. Yeah super rude and self-centered. So we get to the party and Turban Orr gets to meet Anamander Rake. Of course, of course he does when they're walking mm-hmm. in there. And the first thing he says to him is, as a Lord, I assume you hold title to land. <laughs> this baby puncher always manages to make an ass of himself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love this. He's got all the class of an afternoon stripper. <laughs> and he has no idea who he's talking uh, to. No it's clue. Like hilarious. Oh my God. He's the kind of guy who keeps lube by the bedstand so he can put on shirts. <laughs> he's like if corporate takeovers were a person. And what's really funny is a- a- Animator Rake insists on being introduced using his name. I know. <laughs> It's like, I'm going to wear a mask, but you got to do... Hi, I'm Anna Mandarin. <laughs> so it's like Shaquille uh, O'Neal coming uh, in with a, what a basketball <laughs> and a title of basketball. Hi, I'm Shaquille O'Neal. Hi, I'm O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> and the best part is Turbinor is like, who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do not watch this. 
no ball sports of which you play idea what's going on there oh my god a group of turban oars is called a beige <laughs> all right i'm done so a lot much is made about the mask that everyone's wearing and the symbolism yeah. of that yeah, did yeah. you write them all down i did not write them all down i no. wrote them all down yes i'm glad somebody did all right so baruch is just wearing a tiny eye shield basically that that just covers his eyes uh, turban Orr is wearing a hawk uh relic is wearing a black a tiger mm-hmm. uh rake is wearing a black dragon of, because of course of course he is Marilio is wearing a peacock. Simtal is a black panther. Mm -hmm. Lord Darl is a wolf. Mamo is wearing a jagu mask. Too soon, Mamo. Yeah, I have questions about that. (laughs) Too soon. He's literally wearing the mask. Not only is he wearing it, but like everybody sees is like, oh my God, that's (laughs) like they have like a visceral reaction. Uh Like, holy. And I was like, I, I mean, so much so that at several points I was like, did he just get turned into a Jagu? Like, did the tyrant just turn him into a Jagu? Like. Not at this point. No, I, I mean, I don't think so. But people's reaction to his mask is pretty over the top. Well, I also think like it's might be the kind of thing where it like in Mean Girls when yeah, Katie shows up as like the bride of Frankenstein. Everyone yeah. else is in like cute, sexy costumes. Yeah, 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 Everyone's yeah. like, ah, yeah, yeah. Like everyone's in these elegant, you know, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing masks and bruised. Or uh, Memo is just in this like horrible tusk face. He shows up with a full Freddy Krueger outfit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, everyone's like <laughs> metal ah, claws and everything. What are you doing? Jesus, man. Um, and Krupp is wearing a cherub mask. Yeah, which again. A lot of like, once we see his mask, oh, the irony, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm like, okay, he's a chubby angel. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) But it seems like it was, it seems like it was built up more than uh, the payoff, in my opinion. After Anamanda Rake walks away from Turbinor, Turbinor then goes on and pontificates about Anamanda Rake and Moonspawn and all that with no clue <laughs> that he was just, he just talking. just talked to him. Well, he's talking about the Lord of Moonspawn, right. but he doesn't like put two and two together. It's like, if the Lord of Moonspawn wants to come down here, I'll give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> like, I'll make an ass out of myself right in front of him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> just more and more ways that he continues to be shown to mm-hmm. be a total prick. It's just yeah. little subtle things. I well, like it. Well, it is nice that we just have at least one character that's just a jackass. Yeah. That's going to sure. get what's coming to him. Um, but when the bridge burners have showed up at the FET, they've been hired as the extra guards and they had, we got five dudes. <laughs> so when, uh, when quick Ben and trots were like going back and forth in the tunnel and um, trots came back and whiskey Jack asked if he'd had success. This is what he was doing, which is why I think the tunnel leads to the forest. It's, it's possible he, but he was getting them hired as the extra guards oh, and he yeah, had yeah. given them the implication that they were all bar guests. Yeah. They yeah, got yeah. hired because bar guests were very exotic. Apparently. And, um, sure. Shalice to Arl dressed as like a bar guest. Right. But like, 
a cute little bar, I guess. With, with a like little a little fur bikini. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, right. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like uh, showing up as a Chewbacca, but again, with just a little fur bikini. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and that's all you wear. So the captain of the guard is disappointed that they aren't all bar gas. And it's just kind of a funny little interchange where Trotz gives himself like this, like some like really stereotypical, like barbarian name as his alias. And Whiskey Jack is like, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's kind of funny. So they, they, but they can see the lightning of the race slash dragon battle. And they're like, Oh shit, we got to find this thing, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was significant too, as Peron and, Calum were leaving for the fete. Calum sees, uh, well, he sends one more message for the Assassin's Guild, and something is nagging him about the gray faces. What could it be? <laughs> There's something I'm missing There's some about con- our plan. There's some connection. What? Something that we're doing. It's right under my nose. It's not right. I feel like I it's going to blow up in my I face really if I don't get it right. <laughs> yeah, this is a... Um, it's it's a problem, yeah. In the book, <laughs> uh, that you feel that that it took him that long to realize. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, wait, a it's second. not that big of a deal, right. but it is like the first thing I thought of when we <laughs> introduced Arugistan. You know, I was like, well, that's not good. Like, <laughs> clearly, that's going to blow up. Nobody's allowed to <laughs> light a cigar in that town. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, like it's like it's so obviously there. You know. For these apparently experienced, you know, saboteurs mm-hmm. to like to make it that far before they're and like actually dug down uh, yeah. past the pipes and put the lines there. I mean, it's a problem. <laughs> it's ultimately not a problem because it doesn't really have much impact on the plot. Right. Like that they did it, that they didn't do it, but it doesn't it right. doesn't ultimately impact anything. In a really significant way. So it's not that big of a deal. And again, the way that I kind of argued it to myself is that we don't know how much knowledge they even had about this city going in. Although it it is known as the city of blue fire. Like, it's not like it's a... Well, I mean, they have like... huge secret they've got underground gas pockets. No, Um, I mean, don't they have like gas lamps everywhere? Yeah, and that's what... Like in the streets? Yeah. Like, how do they think? It's being supplied. Yeah. Like, they're not idiots. Like, it's it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So we find, oh, back to kind of what you were saying about Turban Orr and his, his, like, pontificating. And we find out that he has already sent a messenger to the Empire. Yeah. Willing to sell out the city. So I wonder if they'll make it. Firmly got both feet into Black Hat territory I at f- this point. I feel like we're going to find out soon whether or not they make it. Yep. And uh, and then, to make things worse, he looks over and he sees Circle Breaker standing there. Finally recognizes and he him. recognizes him. He's like, oh, that's the you dick that's been spying on me. Yep. Son of a bitch. I'm going to kill. And he's on his way to literally just go over and kill him when he's bumped into by Relic Nam. And again, this whole exchange, the whole duel is just fantastic the way Ralik just just very efficiently and brutally insults him to the point where he has to challenge him to a duel and well i mean this is like this is the culmination of like 
two thirds of a plot in the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, finally Absolutely. coming to bear, and at a critical juncture when Circle Breaker was about to get his kidneys punched. Oh yeah. You know. And again, this this has nothing to do with like the Empire or the Tyrant or even nope. like the eel schemes. It's like the simplest of plot elements. And what I love, even. And we talked about it being like a little human story about this group of friends trying to help each other. But it's also like about Ralic and Marilio both trying to find redemption for themselves. Yeah. Like to do one good thing for someone just because they were their friend. Yeah. You know? And um, and then on, on the way, they unwittingly save Circle Breaker's life and stop a council member from becoming a traitor. But yeah, there's so many things that they, they end up doing in the process. And it really touches on this theme of, like, fate and luck, um, which is really prevalent in this series. And I, I love the way it's handled. And we've talked about this before by having this literal personification of luck along with other demigods, it really allows Erickson to kind of indulge in all sorts of kind of last minute improbable occurrences without it feeling like, you know, um, without it, it feeling like, oh, that's just put in there conveniently or, yeah. you know, being a deus ex machina kind of thing um, because we've got Opon messing about. So meanwhile, Marilio is distracting Lady Simtal and again, I still love this kind of reversal of having this, like, the the person who's sent in to seduce and distract someone being not a female. Yeah. Because particularly in, I mean, not that it's, not that, uh, not that this is by any means exclusive to fantasy, but it would, typically in fantasy, yeah. it would be the other way around. Yeah. And then Anna Mander Rake stepping forward as... Um, as Ralic's second. Yeah. That was a cool part, too. Well, my favorite part, um, which I, know, I don't know what this says about me, is in the whole insulting sort of, you know, phase, Turban Orr doesn't even know who Ralic Nam is. Right. Like, the, the, whole, the whole process can't have taken place for more than a minute. Mm -hmm. They've said 10 sentences to each other. Mm -hmm. And we're... And, Terminor says to him, if I could kill you a thousand times, it would not be enough to satisfy me. <laughs> like, like, you have an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. <laughs> right. Like, that is a, that's taking it a bit too far. <laughs> but, like, nobody... Nobody treats Turban Orr like that, you know? And the fact that he is, well, I guess, um, at least amongst the noblemen, he's considered a really dangerous duelist. Like, there's never a doubt in his mind that he is just going to kill this guy. Absolutely. You know? Um, so, you know, a lot of stuff, people are start gathering around. This duel is going to happen. I love this part where um, Crocus, like, pushes past whiskey jack from the woods mm -hmm. he's like oh this kid dressed as a thief and it's just so funny because you know that that sorry is with crocus and probably right behind him yeah all these people kind of showing up but not everyone knows who everyone else is and before the duel can happen we have crocus busting in looking for chalice and he kind of goes up and like asks the guard what's going on and then he looks over and he's like, oh, what's Ralic doing? Yeah, yeah. And Circle Breaker's like, you know him? And he's like, ah, uh, no. No. Obviously, I have no idea. So thankfully then, Krupp kind of steps in and he 
he hands Circle Breaker his retirement papers. And I just love this part. Yeah. Um, he sent, just hands him a note that says, the circle is mended, my loyal friend. And he's purchased him an estate and a title in another country. And I thought this was just crazy. You know, it, and it shows the full extent of power that Krupp could have. Like, he's got enough money to purchase an estate and a title for an underling that's retiring. Yeah. Like, and yet he chooses to kind of just live above an inn mm-hmm. with a bunch of thieves he has so much and he just steps away from power. And again, it's a contrast to the Jagu tyrant and that whole concept of like the best people are the ones that, that step away from power and the duel finally starts and it's freaking off. Again, it doesn't last very long again, but it's like my favorite. (laughs) It's like my favorite fight in the whole book. Yeah. yeah. So you've got, or kind of like whipping his sword around and Uh putting on a show and being like, Oh, and just seeing like, Oh, who's here. Oh, I'm so glad that all these people are going to watch me, you know, Mm -hmm. like kill this guy. And Raleigh is just standing there like hands at his sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's like, I'm ready. And um, there's no back and forth. There's no like, Perry repost or running around or anything like None. that. I mean, Rally just steps up and fucking stabs him. Yeah. <laughs> like Turbinor like does a lunge and Rally just bats his sword aside and stabs him in the neck. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's just like, bam. Like um, over it. It very much reminds me of uh, the first Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, where the swordsman in the market comes out. Yes, yes. Flailing the big falchion around, you know, flipping it around. And yep. Indiana Jones just takes out his pistol and shoots him and doesn't he, and just turns and walks away. Doesn't, yes. Doesn't think twice about it. It very much reminds me of that fight. No, but it, it, it was a very satisfying moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so I have to say the, the thousand other deaths line was actually something Ralik says to Turban Orr, I think. No, so what happens is... Oh, that's right. Turban okay. Orr says that to him. Um, and then when when Turban uh, Orr says that to Rollick, and mm-hmm. then when Rollick stabs him and he's bleeding out on the concrete... You're right, you're right. Rollick says, a thousand other deaths to you. you know? Right. But he says, but I will settle for this one. But I'll settle for this one, yeah. Exactly. Damn! So he turn he turns it turns it back, yeah. yeah. And it you know it had to be there for that awesome line to be delivered, but right. it's also despite its despite how ludicrous it is mm-hmm. for Turban Orr to say that, it's absolutely in keeping with Turban Orr's character. Right. He just looked at Anamanda Rake and said, "I presume you hold land, you <laughs> scum, to be at this party." <laughs> If the Lord of Moon Spawn would come down here, I'd give him the what for. Like, right. so, so it's not really that ludicrous in relation to who this character is. And he's laying there bleeding out, and my favorite character in the whole book makes an appearance for the first time. A large, round woman in bright green, gold trim robe joined them. Yes. Unmasked. She smiled broadly at Baruch. Greetings. Interesting times, yes. A personal <laughs> servant stood at her side, bearing a padded tray on which squatted a water pipe. <laughs> Who yes. is this bitch? <laughs> Darunan. I love it. She's awesome. This is how you show up to a fete. That's right. With your manservant carrying your own personal bong on a tray. <laughs> That's right. That is a 
power move. <laughs> no mask. No, she is the Cardi B of this series, and I'm here <laughs> she for it. Is. She is. At Christmas, she decorates her ha- entire house in gluttony. <laughs> she lactates patchouli. <laughs> yes, half it is, is awesome. Half of her body weight is bong resin. <laughs> the other half is fish lyrics. <laughs> she laughs in Helvetica. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, Darudin is an awesome, I, I mean, awesome my, character. My Absolutely my favorite. Uh, and then we get to see Simtal's downfall, which is quite delicious. You know, Ralik just busts into the room. I had like, more you sympath- done, bitch. I had more sympathy for her. Did just, you for Simtal? Well, I don't really have sympathy for her. I have f- sympathy for her death. Like... Like when he leaves her just in that room, like with a dagger. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I pre- you presume anyway that she kills herself, but you but presume you don't, you so. Don't but you but again, she doesn't have to. No, she certainly doesn't have like, to. She can go do what Call did, which which she engineered. Yeah, which is yeah. go you know, go live in an inn somewhere, penniless. It wasn't even really her as much as like. There was a certain coldness in Marilio when he like he had to actually see it through, you know, and realize what he had done. Well, you definitely definitely see. And I thought, you know, this the scene where Rollick is a little bit salty towards Marilio, even though Marilio was only enacting his part of the the plan that they put together. Yeah, yeah. you know. and the way that it impacts Marilio more than what Marilio had to do impacts him more than what Ralic had to do, yeah. even though Ralic actually killed killed someone. somebody. Yeah, but we see Marilio really struggling with something that I guess we've seen Ralic already kind of work through this. Yeah, like true. I'm on the dark side now. Yeah, is there anything redeeming about me at all? Yeah, there. I mean, there are obviously at very different places with that struggle because they have very different experiences. So then Crocus. Oh, Crocus. I, I am done with the Crocus show. And it <laughs> and here's where it happens. Like where he decides to kidnap yeah, Chalistar. I'm like, you fucking idiot. Like <laughs> he shoves her into a garden in a way. I mean, to say it's creepy is being far too generous. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he and then he wonders, now what? And I'm like, right. yeah, I bet. Now what? You just the fuck is wrong with you, you idiot? <laughs> like, you know, and things like this end badly. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not not good. So on to chapter twenty two. Raced gets pulled out of his quest for the finest into one of Krupp's elder visions, courtesy of Pran Chol, the Bonecaster. The elder god Krull offers him a nice retirement package, but Race declines. After being cut in half by Tool, Race is forced to flee his crumbling body and possesses poor Uncle Mammoth, and shit really starts to go down. The Jagu tyrant is defeated by the bridge burners working in concert with the rich Darudin, and a mysterious but convenient force called the Azath. As that conflict dies down, the conflict between the Empire and the leaders of Darugistan heats up. Callum finally meets up with Vorkan, the head of the Assassin's Guild, and hires her to take out the Cabal leading the city. At this point, I have no idea who I'm rooting for, but I'm definitely (laughs) along for the ride. I just like how Steven Erickson is able to make 
all of the sides at least somewhat sympathetic. You know, like obviously we're rooting against the empire, right? It's an evil empire. They want to they want to come over and and take control, but I can't root against the bridge burners. Yeah. yeah. And I can't root against Dujek. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, on one hand, of course, you're going to root for the last free city. Come on. It's the Mm -hmm. last free city. But also, like, the guys that are running the city are kind of a bunch of dicks, you know? So, it's just, it really, I love the complexity of the situation and the conflict. You don't get that in fantasy very often. Well, and Anamanda Rake is not, like, he's not a good guy. At the same point in time, the only, like, clearly black character we have is Raced. Right. You know, and Anamanda, at this point, you know, we sort of think Anamanda Rake is the one who's going to, because we think Raced is the big bad. Turns out he's not the big bad. Um, We think he's the big bad, and we think, you know, Anamanda Rake has to be the one to stand there. But Anamanda Rake is not a, not a white hat character. Right. Like, there's a lot of things. Anamanda Rake wants to kill Crocus. Like, yeah, you really don't have any of those. No, um, except you know. for in the. I mean, that's one of the things I find fascinating about this series is the only characters who really are are clearly just black hearted are the ascendants and the gods and like these uber magical mm-hmm. figures, and we really don't have any of them that are even remotely good. Well, you know, I would argue that Cotillion has some sympathetic moments, at least in the beginning, where at least he seems to regret. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I guess I conflate Shadow Throne with Cotillion too mm -hmm. much. Or one of the two, the rope. Right. Cotillion is the rope, yeah. Oh, well, no, there's nothing redeeming about him. The one who possesses Sari. Yeah. See, I feel like in the beginning, he kind of acts like he regrets what he has to do. Hmm. Maybe a little. And Amanis yeah. is just kind of off his rocker. Okay, yeah. Um, Carole is a good character. Right. good, you know. But, but that's pretty much it. So this chapter opens up mid-dragon battle. Mm-hmm. Interesting narrative choice. I keep envisioning Raced as L. Ron Hubbard. Like, <laughs> of course. I have driven the Great Beast back. Now he must read Dianetics. <laughs> what are your crimes, Great Beast? That's, so Raced that's just me. definitely has no um, doubts about his own invincibility mm-hmm. and that he is go- absolutely going to overcome anyone who comes at him. He just needs the finest. And I think that is kind of a, a, a cool thing that here we've got this all-powerful creature, but he's not all-powerful yet. He needs his Horcrux. But he needs his Horcrux, exactly. Yeah. So, but, it's, but it sounds like he's killed Turban Orr's messenger because as he's walking along, just kind of crushing things, there's a little man and a horse riding away from the city. His most trusted messenger. Yeah, the whole beginning of this chapter is about, it's just about establishing race as a badass. This is where... You know, he flings the body away, right. he ignites the air, the ground he steps on breaks. It's it's just about building him up. And suddenly he finds himself in an elder vision. And I love how the whole uh, seemingly random dreams that Krupp has been having with Kroll kind of culminate in this. Yeah. That they aren't really just kind of random. Yeah. It's culminating in what 
ends up being the end of raced. I, I just like that these dreams, at least especially this one, are brought on by food comas. It, <laughs> yeah. it just makes diabetes so cute. <laughs> it is. I do absolutely love how this whole thing happens. And then in like the next chapter, Krupp is like passed out on the pastry table. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like, oh, wait, he's actually defeating the Jagu tyrant while he's sleeping. It takes on these a lot croissants. of calories. <laughs> So, and I just love this. Krupp shows up and he's just like, dear sir, you've not aged well. Yeah, I know. He is <laughs> not impressed. He says, Krupp stands before you so that you may gaze upon his benign countenance in the last minutes before your demise. <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh, Raced also not particularly impressed, although he says something that's interesting. He says, there is an eye mass within you. Uh, but it seems like that is not the case. It just, that tool happened to be nearby. Well, I think also the, uh, he might be referring to the fact that the Emas became humans. Like the, the Emas were sort oh, of the humans. Oh yeah. And he hasn't forebears, seen humans. And he hasn't okay. Okay. Really that can, seen humans before. I guess I hadn't crossed my mind that that's the first human because he probably killed the rider at a distance right but, but tool is there as well um i and i love this race devours krupp with his dark virulent power and krupp like shows up on the other side of him and he's just like rude yeah yeah you're in my dream asshole so, yes, the bone caster Pran Chol has been behind this summoning, and he's summoned Tool and the Elder God Kroll to come in and um, kind of take race down a few notches. So, the Elder God Kroll first, though, appears to make an offer to race. Because good is He's dumb. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to have a good is dumb moment. Are you absolutely. <laughs> It's <laughs> good as dumb. <laughs> so he's like, listen, this is not our world anymore. The mortals are the masters now. It really sucks here. You're not going to like it. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be as powerful as you think you are. Tampa is not what it looked like on the brochure. <laughs> Come back to Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas, where things are simple. <laughs> So Krult offers to take race through the gates of chaos, because that sounds like a lot more fun. I mean, give it a nicer name. <laughs> it's not particularly inviting. The gates of Come flowers. On. Like, like maybe Anything. like the Hilton of chaos. I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but he's like, at least you won't be completely destroyed. Instead, race, you know, is able to leave his body, which has now been chopped all to bits he flees to Mamo, who he had already kind of set up a back door. Leaving Corral, standing there going, I can't believe these sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads didn't work. <laughs> right. So meanwhile, Paran and Caleb are creeping up to where the thinnest is growing. Something is wrong. Yeah. Well, this garden, you know, where the thinnest was held... Power sort of draws power, right? Mm -hmm. Caleb and Piran are there. The whiskey, you know, the bridge burners there. Whiskey Jack. Sorry ends up there. Vorkan shows up. I mean, mm -hmm. all these people start showing up at the same spot. Um, and and they are all 
wigged out by the finist. The finist is starting to grow. It's this weird sort of stump looking thing that's starting to emerge out of the ground. When Peron and Kellum come up to it, Sari is standing there. She's kind of staring at it. So we kind of get Peron gets to kind of see where Sari is at now. She doesn't recognize them at first, but then she remembers killing Peron. So all of her, mm-hmm. her memories are not completely locked away and neither of all of her skills, because I think she still has got some moves there. Well, Kal- yeah, Kalam sort of comes up behind her and she, you know, she pulls the, the, the 90 pound woman, you know, mm-hmm. and he flies over her shoulder, you know, very much like a, uh, what was that show you used to like all the time? With Which one? Oh, Femme Nikita. Femme Nikita. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like one punch knockout all these 300-pound <laughs> mob dudes. So the bridge burners, like you said, have all, all kind of end up converging and realize that Sari is no longer what she was. Yeah. So Mallet kind of checks her out. He's able to explain what's happening to her, that um, there's this... You know, obviously she was possessed, but then there was somebody else that was in there yeah, too. She's riggle, basically riggle just the seer, yeah. Riggle the seer, um, but that the thing inside was dying, but that it had been protecting her. And gosh, this was just such a low key one of the saddest moments of the book. Yeah, when he talks about how sad this being is inside of her. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. The the saddest thing I've ever known, and yeah. and for. Mallet to say that, you know that that's pretty sad. I mean, Riggle Riggle I the Seer was a sad, sad old woman. Yeah. But so the fact <laughs> that she, you know, gave up her life to be inside of Sari's head and protect her all of this time, mm-hmm. you know, and Mallet has to make a decision. Um, do I, do I give this being what it needs to continue protecting her? We don't really know anything about it. And Whiskey Jack says, do it. So, Sari is protected from, I guess, absolutely losing her mind. And then Rolik Nam and Vorkan show up. And it turns out that Rolik Nam is like the human version of the adjunct sword. Yes. Well, he rubbed ototeral ototeral dust dust all over himself. All over himself. And apparently it's permanent. Like... Which was alluded to that like it it changes this dust right. can change people. Well, it changed him. It made him like a human version of the of the adjunct. But mm-hmm. like, but like she can drop that sword. You know, right. Rolik Nam is Rolik Nam. Like, right. You know, so he. I mean, that's a that's a pretty powerful thing because if the adjunct, you know, was such a badass, basically. On the simply on the basis of having a title and that fucking sword, mm-hmm. then Rolik Nam, who was a trained, highly gifted assassin, having that power without it having you know, in all circumstances, you can't sneak up like you can't. He can't. You can't disarm him of it. You can't separate him from it. You could separate adjunct theoretically. Theoretically, you could separate Lorne from the sword. It can't be done for Rolik Nam, you know? Yeah, and Vorkan also makes a, a note that Turban Orr had magical protections around him that Rolik was able to kill him so easily because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well. Which is all, again, that goes back to sort of Opon and the coin, um, and also the eel's protection, because the eel knew what he was going to do, and if it wasn't for that Otateral dust... He, Rolignan probably wouldn't have won. 
Right. Certainly not since he'd been stabbed in the guts earlier that night. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, all these things sort of converging in this plot. And that's one of the cool things about this book is you can, you can just keep chasing things back to some other mm-hmm. thing. But there are a few things, particularly that we start to find out about in this chapter, which come from fucking nowhere. Right. So. Well, there's 10 more books to get through, nine more books to get through. So Crocus and Chalice Arl have a, a confrontation. <laughs> I stopped taking notes about them at this point. So, I was just I, I so, gets a, so Crocus gets a little better here. He has at least a little character moment, a little bit of growth. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll give you that. She's like, why did you tell everyone I killed that guard? She's like, I didn't tell anyone anything. Like, you know, Krupp turns out made all that up. Like nobody was hunting for Crocus. Nobody mm. made all that all of that up to keep Crocus safe. Well, people were just not just not for that reason. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. No, Krupp mm. didn't want to tell Crocus anything about the coin bearer, so yeah, he yeah. made up this whole thing. She was like, "No, nobody was. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know." And and she's not interested in him. And she finally is just like, what do you want from me? Yeah. And he's like, you don't even know what it's like to have a yeah. real life. And she's like, I don't really want to. It looks like it sucks. Yeah. So bye. And he's like, okay. And, well, and what, like again, to her point, what the fuck was he thinking was right. going to happen, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just, it's the first pair of tits he ever saw, and mm-hmm. therefore he must have been in love. Like, yeah. he just doesn't understand, like. But it's kind of neat to watch him confront that, and she's like, what do you even want from me? And he's like, I don't actually know. Yeah. You know, and he kind of realizes that, like, wait a second, this is actually not what I want to do. And I think too, you see Krogus kind of wrapped up and finally looking at what do I want from my life? And he had kind of left the idea of being a scholar. Oh, I'm going to be on the streets. I'm going to be a thief, you know, and then seeing Chalice to Arl kind of inspired him to say, maybe that's not what I want. And we see him go through that moment kind of again. So for me, it makes him a little bit more likable and like, Okay, this is this is a teenager who's just fumbling his way through. Yeah, for sure. Through life. So then Crocus spies on the bridge burners meeting with Vorkan and Ralic yeah. and he's like, "Oh, damn." Yeah. And they make of course this huge offer for Vorkan, which is what they've been trying to do this whole time, uh for her to assassinate the cabal of the mages. Uh it just I have a question here though, you know, would Lacine uh, want a powerful mage assassin who's well connected as the high fist an entire continent away. Like, I understand it's sort of a power play to get Darujistan, but it also seems like potentially a huge thorn in her side later. Except that's kind of what she's done with every city that she's true, conquered. True, true. You know, but I feel like Vorkan in particular is problematic but anyway because she's a mercenary or because she is a high mage and an assassin and she's an entire continent away like tayshren is a high mage but he's right under her thumb and 
he's also kind of a dumbass in a lot of ways. Well, and Lazine has the Imperial Warrens, so she can kind of zip around. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like this is just something that this is kind of standard procedure for the yeah. Empire. It's kind of what she's always done. Yeah, and honestly, Borkan doesn't have to think too hard. She's like, so do I have to kill Animator Rake? Or yeah, yeah. And when they're like, no, no, no. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm it. I'm well, then, cool. yeah. She's let's, like, I want to be a high fist and have 900,000 smackaroos. Like, absolutely. Hook yeah. me up, you know? So then Lazine is just going to have to try and keep her happy. Or little does she know. Whiskey Jack thinks the real plan is for Dujack to come in and take over. Yeah. So anyway, they leave Relic there because apparently when he sits on the finest, it stops growing. I know. So they're like, just stay just sit here. here. He's like, what? And do what? Just just, just sit stay here. Stay there. Just sit there. <laughs> okay. But Relic sends Crocus off to warn uh, the the mages. He's like, so you're just gonna sit there on that stump? Oh yeah. Pretty much. That was kind of my plan. So then we have the forming of the mammoth raced Megazord. (laughs) So I love how Baruch and Animator Rake are on their way home from the party. Shit starts blowing up. They're like, well, I guess it's all over. They're like, damn it. (laughs) Yeah. And uh um, missed out on the good stuff. And uh Baruch is like, oh my gosh, we have to go back. And Animander's like, look, the Jagu actually is not gonna be that big of a problem. Actually, the Empress. So that's a that is just a uh, a moment where you're was, like, what this Jagu's been so built up. It's and built wait up, a second, there's and it's two chapters left. Even the big bad. What is happening? Uh, this was I, a distraction the entire time. I, I love this part where Animander clears the streets. He's like, you have to get these people off the streets. And Baruch is like, what are you talking about? It's like, it's Mardi Gras. It's like, there, there's 300,000 people on the streets. And Animander Rake like gets out and like he draws his sword and it's like, he just goes full Animander. If you value and- your souls, <laughs> you will make way. <laughs> and uh, people are, people clear the streets. Oh Yeah. Oh, yeah. But so so the Megazord is formed. Right. Animander Ray clears the streets. But Peron. Yes. Once again, <laughs> whisked away to some magical, you know, spiritual, spiritual plane. plane. Like, what the fuck is up with this guy? Like, like Quick Ben, who, by the way, huge badass in this fight uh-huh. coming up. Like. He doesn't get, he just gets flown into, you know, Darudin and has some rocks fall on him. <laughs> Animana Rake gets his, or uh, Whiskey Jack gets his legs crushed. Peron ends up in a whole, in another pocket universe. Like, <laughs> he's always getting pulled into Constantly pocket. getting pulled into pocket universes. Uh-huh. You know what? I don't see any female characters getting pulled into pocket universes. Uh, no, they just keep getting tackled by Quick Ben. That, apparently. A qu- yeah. Quick Ben tackles Darudin like three times in this fight, I, I counted. Think he, I think he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking for a soft place to land. <laughs> oh, so what happens, why Peron goes into the pocket universe, though, this time, is Raced is sending out these streams of power. Mm-hmm. And wherever they strike people, people are just disintegrating. Yeah. I mean, it's it's bad shit. He sends one at um, Paran. Paran blocks it with his sword. Yeah. The yeah. sword sucks Paran into. And, and I know it's connected the to the universe. sword. Yeah. Like, I, I get that. But, but man, 
this dude. So he gets he gets pulled into the pocket universe. Tool is there still fighting raced. Um and he implores Paran to defend the Azath. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what that is. When I first hear the word, I'm like, what is that? As it goes on and we realize it becomes more important, I'm like, well, clearly, I've heard more about it. It's been set up and I just don't remember. Mm-hmm. So I go into my e-readers, the mm-hmm. advantage of, of reading on a, on a Kindle, and I search for the word Azath. Nope. First nope. mention. <laughs> Absolutely first time it's been mentioned. No, no reference before <laughs> at all. But it won't be the last. No, no, it's a, it plays a pretty important part. It will not. So that an Azath is, are we going with Azath or Azath? Azath. Okay. Sure. So an Azath. It's wrong no matter how we say it. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Um, it's something that arises where unchained power threatens life. Um, so it it is able to take the finest captive thanks to Peron um, holding it off. The finest power tries to take Peron, but something saves him. He's got the blood of a hound, which him coming into contact with that hound's blood has somehow made him some kind of weird low-key werewolf or something. <laughs> anyway, he goes, I love this part too, where uh, he does all of this and then he flashes back to the party and uh, Hedge or someone who's there is just like, Peron, what is he even doing? Like He's just standing there doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but Quick Ben is a badass. We've, he opens up the power of seven different Warrens, which is not something that everybody can do. Man, so this is this is the most anime thing that's happened in this book. So anime. Awaken the seven within me. <laughs> and I can just see like seven different uh-huh. prismatic colors streaming down into uh-huh. him and flying out. And it's just, it, it has a very anime vibe to it. And oh, now yeah. he opens seven Warrens simultaneously. Later, Baruch will say, is that even possible when he hears about it? <laughs> but it doesn't work. Nope. And then Hedge shoots... He hits the Megazord with, with a water that. balloon. <laughs> right. It's like the, you know, it's the monster from Signs that were, not, or one of those shows that was a, a M. Night Shyamalan thing where it was allergic to water. Right. You know? Uh, but, it, yeah, he hits it with a, um, a ballista loaded with explosives. And apparently, and again, no reference to this anywhere else, when you open up a Warren... It draws all the explo- the explosive power into it. Well, this is a Moranth weapon, which oh, is drawn gotcha. to sorcery. So this is a special oh, kind of okay of weapon that is drawn to Warrens. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, that's cool. Quick Ben tackles Darudin again. Oh, Darudin, <laughs> are you okay? So the Jagu isn't killed by the explosion, but it gives the Azath enough time to come up and, you know, creep around it. Yeah, it weakens and, uh, him enough that the Azath is able to grab it and, and get a hold of it. And again, the Azath is able to get a hold of it because in the Shadow Pocket, or the Pocket Universe, uh, Peron is kicking the shit out of the finest. Right. He's literally chewing it with his teeth like a wolf. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's why this is all able to happen. But I, I did think it was cool that in order to defeat the Jagu Tyrant, you had to kind of defeat it 
in this world mm-hmm. and in this pocket world mm-hmm. and destroy its finest mm-hmm. and have this ancient one time. Like all these things had to happen. It's bananas. At the same point in time, the Jagu Tyrant, I mean, within two chapters, appears, kicks the shit out of everybody, and then fucking dies. <laughs> like, no, it's so crazy. Oh, completely over with. <laughs> and. So now, you know, Quick Ben and Kalam and all them, they're like, it's time to get out of here and start blowing shit up, you know, and detonate our explosives when Quick Ben sees an open gas pipe. Uh Uh-huh. And it's like, they've never thought of it before. Wait a second. (laughs) So listen, I mean, people do stupid things. One time, when when I lived in California, my drunk friend and I decided to walk home but we were both really tired and we had to climb this big hill to get home. So rather than both of us climbing the hill, we decided we would just take turns carrying each other. (laughs) It's a beautiful metaphor, but it's ugly in its execution. (laughs) Seems like they should have known. <laughs> Just like we should have known that was a bad idea. Like, they should have known. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that was my reaction to that as well. I was, And I had to go back like, and look and be like, is this really? It really took them this long? Yeah. It, to, to realize that it they really did. shouldn't plant explosives here. That the town... That they've been tunneled, but they did not call Miss Utility. They mm-hmm. just dug underground. <laughs> like, they're digging tunnels all over town. They mm-hmm. don't realize it. Like uh, they're they're walking past gas lit lamps everywhere mm-hmm. that come up from pipes in the ground. Mm-hmm. Never thought to ask, "Hey, where's the tank for this?" <laughs> like, I mean, never, never thought to ask. It would. It would be much more of a problem if it was more relevant right. to the plot. Right. You know? Yeah, it, it ends up not being. It ends up not being. Really. So, so, it's, so it's just sort of funny in that, in that regard. Mm-hmm. In Chapter 23, Paran confronts Cotillion and the Hound Rude, who senses a mysterious kinship with our intrepid captain. Paran gives Cotillion his lucky sword and sets off after Lorne to finally wreak his vengeance upon her. Lauren tries to assassinate Crocus, but she's stopped by the Crimson Guard, who were sent by Caladan Brood and Prince Kaz to protect the coin bearer. She's badly injured and ends up being killed by Meese, the lowly agent of the eel. Crocus dashes off to find Baruch, while Anamander Rake casually turns into a giant freaking dragon. You know. Like it's you like, do. I'm tired of this bullshit. <laughs> I mean, we had to, at least at some point, see Anamander really let loose and we finally get to yeah for sure so paran gets just kind of inexplicably attacked by this hound yeah but again it shows up and this hound is just like fuck you yeah (laughs) and he's like what just throwing him around like a ragdoll but he senses a strange kind of kinship and it, it backs off um, Cotillion is there and Paran considers telling him what he did to free the two hounds that were captured mm-hmm. by Animander's sword, but he doesn't want to sound desperate. So 
He decides to play it cool. You gotta play it cool, man. You don't wear the concert tee of the band you're going to. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but Peron wonders at this, you know, kind of kinship he feels with this hound. And uh, he wonders when he next meets a hound, will he run with it or from it? <laughs> either way, either way, he's going after Lorne. But before he goes after Lorne, because if you're going to go fight somebody with an epic magical sword, the thing you should do oh, is, is get rid of your own get epic Get rid of mag- your own epic magical sword. Absolutely. So he gives Cotillion the sword chance, which just saved his life. But also ended up, you know, being why he ended up in this little pocket universe right. to begin with. Um, but yeah, he gives away his epic magical sword. But it also kind of gets Cotillion off his back. It does. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it could potentially be getting Opon off of his back. Yeah, too, I think that's certainly you know? the point there. And that's and I, that's why he does it because he's like, I, I'm tired of being Opon's tool. Right. So he thinks this is, and, and we don't know if that will work, but there's some logic behind it. Again, Lorne starts um, following Crocus around. You know, she's going to assassinate Crocus, but she also reveals, you know, again, right at the end of the death of Raced, that the like Tayshren's plan never hinged on the Jagu Tyrant. Right. The Jagu Tyrant, I mean, don't get me wrong, if the Jagu Tyrant had taken or killed Animana Rake, they'd be happy about it. Right. But this was always a distraction, and it was really this, another one of these demons. Right. That Tayshren has, you know, got in his pocket that he unleashes uh, at that moment. Of course, at this point, Lorne doesn't know that the Jagu Tyrant is dead. So it was always this sort of... Um, you know, the tyrant was always this sort of distraction and the demon being this, um, you know, the real thing or just an uber powerful plan B not sure which. And the Empress definitely has plans within plans. So yeah. in the meantime, moon spawn has floated directly over the city at uh-huh. this point. And I think this is, you know, uh, animator rake trying to keep people off the streets, but it, it it just completely is now covering the city. Crocus is running for Baruch's to try and warn him. Lauren is following Crocus. She's hoping to be able to take that coin for the Empress. And we see once again, her crushing that small doubting voice that, gee, maybe I shouldn't like kill this teenager um, and wreak havoc upon this city. And she releases another one of Tayshren's demons, a galleon Lord. And then she heads off to kill him. But does not get very far. No. So she leaps to attack Crocus, but she's repelled by the Crimson Guard. And we meet Fingers, the sixth blade of the Crimson Guard, Mm -hmm. and Corporal Blues, who makes quick work of Lorne, who up until now has been like a total badass. Absolutely, yeah. Corporal Blues just takes her out. Mm -hmm. And he does that by fighting without magic. So her magic repelling sword doesn't help her, and she realizes how much she has been relying on that so Lorne gets her ass kicked gets her ass handed to her and her only choice is to basically run away right 
Which she does. She runs away. She ends up collapsing in an alley. And the next thing she knows, she's being confronted by two agents of the eel, Arelta and Meese, who are low level, like not even magical. Yeah. Basically criminal agents. And she realizes that this is how she's going out, you know? Yeah. Um, And all she can think is not like this. Yeah. Well, like that. Right. And and that's how it happens. That's exactly how it happens. Just like that, it's over. She just manages to get away from these minions of Caladan Brood, badly injured, you know, runs into a dark alley, collapses, loss of blood, exhausted, and runs right into two people who have been more than happy to stick a blade in her. And they do. And they do. And I, for me, this part where Peron finds her in her last moments, and he's been coming to kill her. Yeah. And she says, if you'd only gotten here a few minutes earlier, and he doesn't correct her. Yeah. And that is just such a like a, a heartbreaking, like sympathetic moment for me that he he could kind of in your face, you know, Mm -hmm. he's been like vowing vengeance. Like he was really, really pissed at Lorne. Yeah. Yeah. But in the end, he withholds that moment of letting her think that she could have had an ally or that there's anyone in this world that is still there for her. He, he gives her as much humanity as he can give her in that moment of her death. Like when that was not what he came there to do. Right. And he, you know, so then he has this, Interaction with Chance, which I want to go back to in in a second, but he ends up taking her and carrying her out of there. And this last line where of, of the chapter where she, it says, her armor removed, she proved light in his arms. Yeah. It, oh, it's just, it's heart-wrenching. Um, and it's just such a beautifully sad ending for this really complicated character. It is, yeah. That, you know, you lost sympathy for time after time. But then in the end, it's still sympathetic. Um, and it just really speaks to this, this theme of, of freedom of choice. The theme that I think of when I think of Lorne are sort of like, it's sort of like the bystanders in a war. Mm-hmm. They don't get spared mm-hmm. because they're bystanders, mm-hmm. you know. And, and Lorne was a bystander to... Lacine's rise to power and her destroying the old emperor snatched up and put in this position. And and then, of course, she became a part of it. She became a whole part of the engine mm-hmm. of war. But like it, it, there's nobody for whom it's positive. Like this, this power of empire, it ultimately ends up bad for everyone, mm-hmm. you know? And if you look at the people or the creatures or gods or whatever, who are gods and who are ascendants, the, particularly the ascendants, the mm-hmm. ones who become ascendants, they're all fucked up mm-hmm. because the process of gaining that much power and influence, you know, the pursuit of it ultimately always corrupts them. And I think that's the most, I would say that is the primary theme of this book, at yeah, least. I, I would I would say so, yeah. It, it's the, you know, the, the virtue of stepping away from power and the corrupting influence of having power. I mean, one of the few really powerful, there are a few really powerful 
beings and creatures we see that that step away from power. And one of them, you know, is Krupp. And he's one of the few sort of redeeming characters. I would, And I would also say Karal, at least where we've seen him, because he sort of realizes he has no power. Yeah, and there's a really, there's a beautiful scene that we didn't really touch on that is between Karal and Animander Rake. Yeah. And they're both kind of standing up there in Karal's temple. And so, okay, Karal is an elder god who's basically been like dormant slash in stasis mm-hmm. for a long time. And he's old. He's older than Raced was. Um, and, but he's been kind of like dormant until someone gets murdered in his temple and the blood kind of awakens him, mm-hmm. but he's only got so much power. Like he can't really do anything. You know, his yeah. power is contingent on having priests and having worshipers and having people believe in him. And that's mm-hmm. just such a, um, I mean, it's certainly not a new concept in mm-hmm. fantasy, but it's neat the way that it plays out here, yeah. especially and as it keeps with the themes we were just talking about. And I love the interchange between Karal and Anamander, and they're talking about basically being immortal in a mm-hmm. world that, you know, power is basically more and more being held by mortals. Yeah. And how do you, like, hold on to your purpose? And Anamander says to him, well, you know, Karal is like, we don't really belong here. Um, he's like, so, you know, what, how, how do you basically survive and what should I go around and try and do what you're doing? And, and Amanda's like, I don't know, you know, but basically he turns to him at the end and says, well, I'll try not to get blood on your temple. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like it's as much as I can do for you. But it's such a, it's such a, which is a poignant and a sad, um, conversation between these two characters who are like all powerful sort of, but, have this vulnerability of of yes i'm immortal and have all this power but i i don't really have a reason to keep existing you yeah. know i want to go back um we kind of talked about lorn uh and Peron and lorn's end and and really to me lorn's death i think i think to me that was the most i don't want to say enjoyable but it was it was up there with the it was up there with the fight mm-hmm. with rollick nam um, it was one of the more pathetic right. points of the book, right. you know, and, and I did really enjoy Lorne's arc mm-hmm. and, and her death, as sad as it is. But earlier in this chapter, in the beginning of the chapter, uh, Rake is still, I think he's still with Baruch, mm-hmm. or no, or he might have, this is like, I think after he just left Baruch's, mm-hmm. and he hears the explosions of magic mm-hmm. uh, and it's Vorkan actually assassinating different mages. Right. But he mistakes it and thinks it's somebody from Caladan Brew's crew. Right. He said, it says sorcery flared occasionally centered mostly in the estate district and rake sensed death within those emanations. He considered the message delivered by Surratt courtesy of a foul mage. He thought a thousand leagues away was the sorcery, the work of these unwelcomed intruders. And I, the first time I read it had no clue what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. I still hadn't pieced together the, you know, when Krupp was talking about somebody else was watching over, I still hadn't pieced together Mm -hmm. what Surratt, you know, the assassin who whispered in her, I hadn't pieced any of that together at this point. And I'm like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. There's this whole other like party and I have no idea who they are. Um, even at this point though, I'd seen 
fingers and like I just hadn't put it together yet, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I had to go, um, but I had to go sort of like read up on Caladan Brood because again, r- also right before this is when this whole situation happens with Lorne, right? You know, and Caladan people from Caladan Brood, right? And so while I'm doing this, I found a couple things I didn't expect to find. Mm-hmm. So all the way back in Pale, in like chapter two, mm-hmm. in the tent with Kalo, Hairlock, and Tattersail. Yeah. All of whom, by the way, are dead now. Yes. Right? Tattersail's not, is only right. mostly dead. But anyway, <laughs> right? This is what I found. Caladan Brood, this is the poem. Right. Caladan Brood, the men hired one. Uh, winter-bearing, barrowed and sorrowless, in a tomb bereaved of words, and in his hands that have crushed anvils, the hammer of his song. He lives asleep, so give silent warning to all, wake him not, wake him not. So we meet Caladan Brood in mm-hmm. like chapter 10. Mm-hmm. He's not asleep. Mm-hmm. So what? So what is the poem about? Well, you read that poem... You can't help but think it sounds an awful lot like the Jagu Tyrant, mm-hmm. not Caladan Brood, mm-hmm. right? Um, Tayshren also says in that same chapter, some new scrolls of Gothos folly were discovered in a, mat- in a mountain fastness beyond Black Dog Forest. Among the writings are discussions of the Tystandi and other people of the Elder Age. Mm-hmm. So Hairlock in this, you know, this whole interaction, thinks that all of this is about Anamanda Rake, and Tayshren's happy to let him think that, and they all wonder why it is that they're attacking Moonspawn now, right? Remember, why we've we've been in the standoff for three years, why now, right? right. Um, but none of it had anything to do with Anamanda Rake. It was all because they found out about the Jagu Tyrant and how to wake it, and they wanted to get south to free the tyrant, and they needed to create a distraction that would occupy Rake. Hmm. It was all about freeing the Jagu tyrant the whole time. Hmm. Then I went back and I looked at um, chapter 10 when we actually meet Caladan Brood. And this is when Crone goes and is talking to right. Caladan Brood, right? And uh, she says, I know who holds the spinning coin. Who, says Brood, a youth whose bliss is ignorance. What does Rake know, Caladan Brood asks, of this little, but you know well his dislike of Opan. He would cut those threads giving the he would cut those threads given the opportunity, idiot Brood muttered. Without Opan, Rake's power is presently unmatched, Brood said. He hangs over Darugistan like a beacon, and the Empress is sure to send something against him. Such a battle would level Darugistan, Corone chirped in brightly, in flames numbering twelve. So fly the free cities, so much ash in the wind. Rake's disdain for everything beneath him has left us stumbling and flat on our faces one too many times. Rake gets that coin, and he'll pull Opon right in and spit the lord and lady on that lovely sword of his. Imagine the chaos that would ensue, a wonderful ripple that could topple gods and deluge realms. Quiet, Bird Brood said. The coin bearer needs protection. Now, now that Rake has recalled his mages. So, 
all of those things were there all along. Mm-hmm. The idea that Caladan Brood mm-hmm. would protect the coin bearer, that mm-hmm. he wanted to oppose Rake, that was way back in chapter 10. Mm-hmm. But you go further back in the first mentions of Caladan Brood, and there's the hint about this whole poem about Caladan Brood, mm-hmm. and Hairlock thinks he's seen through Tayshren and his wonderful ruse, but Tayshren's ruse with Caladan Brood and Andermatt and Rake was never about that. Mm-hmm. It was about the Jagu Tyrant from the beginning. Mm. So I don't know why Caladan Brood gets conflated with the Jagu Tyrant in that poem in Gothos Folly that they I have no idea why that is. Mm-hmm. But it was just very I found it very satisfying to know that all that it, that destroy the as much as it was a distraction, mm-hmm. or at least one element of a plan, not the entire plan. Mm-hmm. The fact that it went all the way back to chapter two and was yeah. set up from that point, you know, and you can find those clues if you s- hint mm-hmm. for them, you know, if you look for them, was um, pretty satisfying to me. Yeah, I mean, there are. In these books, it does sometimes feel like there's so much random stuff flying around and happening. Yeah, and the Azath, by the way, fly- oh, that's totally random. totally flying like it. So it happens. Yeah. It's not right. all set up in chapter two, <laughs> right? But a lot of it is <laughs> yeah. is foreshadowed, and it is pretty cool to find those things. Yeah, and yeah, and by the way, Animator Rake is a dragon. He's a dragon. So we didn't really talk about, too, this this demon getting released that Lorne releases. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of running around. You know, uh, Callum runs into it after he runs up and, and stops the saboteurs from blowing everyone up, yeah. like the entire city. Mm-hmm. He's, and uh, he, uh, well, he actually doesn't have to stop them because he's, it's one of those things where he's running toward them and he finds them running away from. <laughs> from the demon, like, yeah. Uh, from this giant demon and obviously this is not like this is not a little pearl sized demon this is yeah, yeah. you know a a demon lord uh who's been set loose and so they all run away um yeah Darudin and baruch are sitting there kind of like pouring one out for their homies and uh and they and she, by the way the whole time she is constantly filling that bong. I sh- she's, but she's mad that her manservant's not there. She's so got to she do it herself. Do it herself. I know. Uh, oh. Um, but then they start just kind of huddling in this protective circle um, to protect themselves. So th- we've got this demon kind of wreaking havoc everywhere. Um, back to Peron standing over Lorne's body, though, because Opon comes and confronts him. About giving away the sword. Yeah, you gave away our sword. I love how this idea of once the gods kind of bless an item or imbue it with their power, that it has intrinsic power of its own and can be actually used against them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really puts a limit on the Ascendant's power, and I, I really appreciate that. And it makes it tricky for the gods to kind of try and affect things indirectly through objects, as Opan is finding out. Because they can be used against them, yeah. Exactly. So I, I like the kind of mortal-immortal power balance. It's is, sort of like when you're a dungeon master, and you, you, know, you give the bad guy a really badass sword because you want him to be a badass, 
and then you just end up giving it to the players. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's always what happens. <laughs> In chapter 24, we finally get to watch Animator Rake really kick some ass, and it's awesome. Vorkan attempts to assassinate Baruch and Darudin, but Crocus decks her with a brick. The Tystandi chase Vorkan all the way to the Azath, which has turned into a house, which Vorkan and Ralik escape into. The bridge burners pull out of Darugistan and go separate ways, while Crocus reconnects with Krupp and Marilio. So he hit that bitch ab- with a brick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, he did. I mean, I mean, yeah. You think you're a badass? <laughs> you get hit in the head with a brick. That's it. You going down? <laughs> like, uh, I mean, that's one of the things I like too. You know, we have race like. Has to go through, like, they topple race pretty quickly, but it's this huge, like, mm-hmm. effort of, like, in so many different ways, right? But, like, these, I, I like the reality that all of these uber powerful characters, like, even like Lorne, can be mm-hmm. taken out through some basic shit. Yeah. You know? I mean, she doesn't, he doesn't kill Vorkan, but he, he stops what she's doing. Yeah. He, <laughs> He definitely, he, he saves Baruch and Darudin, for sure. Yeah. So I'm going to read the poem in the beginning of this chapter real quick, because I think it's important. I am the house imprisoning in my birth demonic hearts, so locked in each chamber, some trembling enraged antiquity. And these roots of stone spread the deepest cracks in parched ground, holding forever the dream of fruit. Ah, pilgrims, come to my door and starve. So the Azath is uh, important in this story, and then it's really important as we move forward uh, into the next book as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I like how it kind of gets introduced here, but then as a as a as a setup, really, for what's going to happen mm-hmm. in future books of the series. I. For me, that saves it from being like, a, oh, this random like thing in the ninth hour that gets thrown out there. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it wasn't obviously until, and up to this point, I'm like, what is this thing? Right, right? yeah, yeah. You know, and it's not until the end of this chapter when they mention, it's called The Dead House, and I'm like, oh, well, the next oh, yeah. book, you know, we're reading is called The Dead House Gates, and mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is going to have tie into other things that are going on. Right. Know? So I love this. The opening scene of this um, is Crocus basically, you know, he's like trying to scale the wall to Baruch's estate. And he basically winds up very comically. And Stephen Erickson has such like a, a cinematic quality to his writing, but he winds up very comically like kind of stuck between these two dragons that are about to fight. <laughs> he's running from one, he runs into the other. He's just then... like, um, so he, yeah, he ends up smack dab between um, the the Galleon Lord and Andamander Rake. So he's kind of our, our witness to the battle. And as they battle, and we talked about this a little bit before, but Andamander says, to the mother's regret was light granted birth. To her dismay, she saw too late its corruption. Galleon, you are the unintended victim long overdue. So I like this subversion where like we're rooting for the darkness, the son of darkness. Yeah. And the 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 demon who represents light is is the bad guy that we're mm-hmm. not rooting for. Like darkness does not necessarily mean evil or destruction. Yeah. 
And that's just such a, that's a deeply entrenched trope. You don't see that subverted very often. For sure, yeah. And then, you know, also, uh, when they when they confront each other, the demon says, I know that weapon, Dragna Puke. <laughs> and I smell the reek of Tiama in you, Lord. There's more of you in her than Tystan D blood. Who is Tiama? I'm assuming it's the mother of darkness, mm-hmm. his name. But again, Tiama, not mentioned anywhere else in the book. Mm-hmm. It only pops up here. Mm-hmm. So then we have Darudin and Baruch basically sitting there waiting for Vorkan to attack. And she like busts through the wall with red glowing hands. And I just, I like that at this point in the story. She's got the cooties. Like. Don't touch her. The action stakes are so high that you basically have to like bust into a room like a deranged Kool-Aid man to get like. (laughs) To be taken seriously at all. Like, uh, by, uh, by the way, <laughs> I took not a single note about it. <laughs> but, but for that, for that reason, there's so much other shit going on. Right? Yeah. It's that, it's like you can't. She's not just going to run into the room. She like, basically ha- you have to break down a wall if you yeah. want to even like get a head raise at this point. Yeah. She's the cool. She's the Kool Aid man breaking down the wall, wielding a lightsaber, and you're like, mm, there's a dragon outside. Nag- <laughs> there's a dragon outside. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it took me the second read to be like, like, because she's like running around chasing them, like I'm gonna get you, and I'm like, <laughs> why, why don't they just attack? Like they're like, what the fuck is going on? And then I'm like, oh, her hand, she's got like, she's got the cootie. She's like, I, I farted on my hand, and now I'm gonna touch you. <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> However, I will say, I mean, not to understate Vorkan's power. I mean, no. She's certainly no dragon um, or, you know, immortal demon lord, but a very powerful Tystandy woman tries to intervene and gets killed by her. So she is a high mage, and she Mm -hmm. definitely is more than a match for um, Baruch and Darudin, but not for Crocus with a brick. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And again, I do. I love that. It's like giant mage battle, and she's down with a brick. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Um, and she escapes, and we'll circle back around to what's happening in with the the bridge burners. But she escapes, um, and she's running for her life because you know she's now killed one of the Tystandi, and they're gonna they're gonna get her back. Mm-hmm. And she runs to where Ralik is, watching the Azath grow into a house. And well, it's like um, when the Azath when the Azath took over the Finnist, right? It basically shoved Rollick out of the way and was like, right. I don't, we don't care about you anymore. Right. You know, and so he just kind of got brushed to the side, his otateral powers not really having any impact on the Azath. But he says that this, that the house feels right. Something mm-hmm. about it feels right and just. And so... I mean, it's turned into a full-on house with, like, turrets and shit at this yeah, point. Yeah. When Vorkan runs into the clearing and collapses and is like, there's fucking Tystan D after me, and they're going to yeah. kill me, he scoops her up and runs into the house. Into the house, yeah. And that's the last you see of them. <laughs> the and, yeah, when the Tystan D, you know, chase him up to the door, and they're like, you know, we were not going in there. Right. And they have a little bit of an argument about it. They do. Well, they they go in and um, 
there's a bunch of them there and, you know, they, they can't get in. But Corlat, one of the Tystandees, says, I know of such creations from old, the dead house of Malaz City, the Odin house of seven cities, the pillars of innocence. And they say, you know, basically another one says like, like. The Azath we, choose their own. The Azath choose their own, you yeah. know. It was so with the, oh, they tell us it was so with the dead house. Two men were chosen, one who would be emperor and one who would accompany him. Kellen Vett and Dancer. And that is really strange. And like, I, I can tell that this is like where a lot, I mean, obviously the next Obviously, just by the title, the next book is going to, the Dead House is going to be obviously relevant and central. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of this idea that, like, it's about innocence, or the Azath is innocent. Mm-hmm. But Kellen Vett and Dancer weren't, didn't turn out to be good guys. I guess it depends on who you ask. Yeah. And at the same point in time, Rolik Nam and Vorkan aren't innocent they're like they're some of the least innocent people in the books well no and we don't so i think would they talk about the azath being innocent because it's a child no i i yeah i i I get i get that it's you know the azath is innocent because it's a child but it takes like it went after and destroyed race and holds it and holds it prisoner. Right. You know, so it, it goes when, you know, it protects innocent life by just dis- yes. taking the evil, but it also opens its door up to these characters who my point is it, it chooses and opens up its doors to mm-hmm. these characters who are not, they're not raced. Mm-hmm. They're not evil. They're also not good. Right. They're not innocent. And it sort of welcomes these very gray characters, mm-hmm. you know, and decides to protect them. Uh, so that that's a really interesting and different mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I can't think of anything else like that that I've read yeah. in fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I would say, Steven Erickson is the master of, of gray characters, all all of his characters are very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few that are. I mean, potentially one of the. I mean, the most. Some of the most innocent characters are like Shalice to Arl, who's mm-hmm. kind of kind of a bitch, mm-hmm. and Crocus, who's kind of a prick, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Sorry, you know, yeah, who's Sorry is one of the most evil badasses in the book. When she's Sorry, mm-hmm. and when she's Absalar, mm-hmm. you know, she's. Innocent. So it's, um, yeah, there's not a lot of white hats in this in this book. Well, and so Corlat the Tice Dandee, who is, who is the one who is blood kin to Surat, who was the fallen, um, declares an end to the quest for vengeance rather than call Animator Rake over to burn this Azath to the ground. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't do it for Vorkan's sake, but for the Azath because uh, it is a child. And, um, well, and I kind of wonder if the Azath let in Vorkan and Rollick j- just to save their lives, just for the 
preservation of life, you know? But I don't know, because if Rollick was standing there kind of feeling sort of a bond with the Azath, mm. we don't really don't know. Mm. Yeah. Um, he was standing there saying that he was feeling like he, could, he was getting sensations from the Azath. Yeah. So we don't know. But I thought this was a uh, neat bit of world building and gives us a glimpse into kind of the before uh, or the current age. Um, mm -hmm. Corlett says, the queen of darkness spoke thus of light when it was first born. It is new and what is new is innocent and what is innocent is precious. Observe this child of wonder and no respect. And then it's just such an interesting statement because these are, you know, the Tysandir are the children of darkness. So they're not fans of the light. And so, um, you know, another of the Tysandir says... Thus did light survive, and so was darkness destroyed and the purity vanquished. You would have us become flawed as our queen was flawed. And Corlett re responds, cherish such flaws, dear brother, for our queen's flaws were hope, and so is mine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really something that's significant in understanding this race and is going to come back to be important later. Then we have Dujak and the uh, bridge burners with Peron. Yes. And we sort of get the culmination. Nah, we we hear we have this sort of conversation between them, and we know a little bit more about what is happening with uh, the empire, and that Lacine has kicked Dujek to the curb. Mm -hmm. uh, Tayshren, when the demon died, went not insane, but at least temporarily, he sort of went mad. He's out. He's incapacitated temporarily, I presume it's temporarily. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dujek is arranging, one, he's work, continuing to work with the Moranth, but he's arranging a meeting with Caladan Brood mm -hmm. to see if he can sort of come over to their side or strike some sort of peace. Right. Um, or at least ask to be able to leave Pale. Yeah. Like they're yeah. ready to retreat. Mm-hmm. So Dujek makes Whiskey Jack his second. He's mm -hmm. like, no more of this, you know, sergeant crap. And of course, at this point, we also know that Whiskey Jack is pretty badly wounded. Yes. Yeah. And he's going to be okay, but he's got like two broken legs. So, and the Panion Seer is mentioned again. Again. As being being set up as, oh, but the real problem. Forget the Jagu Tyrant and the Dragon. And, yeah. You know, the real That's problem is change. this Panion yeah. Seer. And Fiddler and Callum say that they are going to take Sorry home mm -hmm. and that they're going to rejoin the bridge burners at a later point, but they feel they owe it to her to take her home. So kind of like a lot of our main character storylines get wrapped up here. Mm -hmm. um, for me at this point, I see what I really like is just the whole like balance of power and the idea of like, price for power you know and the fact that we haven't it makes me wonder about it made me wonder about relic and like we've seen him basically become like this all-powerful kind of magic repelling person mm -hmm. and he hasn't pay, seemed to pay a price for that yet no mm -hmm. um and we see crocus catch up to krupp and Marilio at the end of the scene um and they tell him like oh you know apparently you know chalice to Arl, like was saved and ended up with this guy lord gorlas mm -hmm. and and crocus is like i actually don't really care so we at least see him move past it's something move past <laughs> something 
All right, and we wrap things up with this epilogue. The bridge burners slip away from Darugistan. Whiskey Jack is busted up, but he's choosing to look on the bright side. Paran can sense reborn Tattersail, and apparently she can read his thoughts. He's totally into it. Callum, Fiddler, Absalar, and Crocus join Circle Breaker on his retirement cruise, and Crocus tosses Opon's coin into the sea. So Whiskey Jack is so Whiskey Jack is busted at this point. His legs are all busted up. Mm-hmm. I, I noted down that Quick Ben is it, all of this time is wondering <laughs> whether or not it's time to let Whiskey Jack know about his secret plan. Well, that's, that he's up to something. <laughs> like there's another secret plan in yeah. the epilogue. <laughs> yeah, I know. From the beach, Quick Ben watched Mallet supporting his sergeant up the slope. Was it time? He wondered. To stay alive in this business, no one could afford to let up. The best plans work inside other plans, and when it's right to faint, faint big. Keeping the other hand hidden is the hard part. The wizard felt a stab of regret. No, it wasn't the time. Give the old man a chance to rest. He forced himself into motion. He wouldn't let himself look back. Never a good idea. The scheme was hatched. (laughs) He's up to something. He's up to something. I don't like it. I did like Crocus tossing the coin into the sea at I the like, end. Yeah, I like that. And and him being like, that Absalar, she's something special. <laughs> she's all right. You know? I like that part. And Kalan being like, yeah. Uh-huh, nice. <laughs> see what's going on here. Yeah. But yeah, I like Crocus giving up now that he knows what the coin is. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that speaks to that deliberate stepping away from power that we've seen in the characters who we like the most yeah for sure so we'll see how that continues but Peron ends on the grossest note ever <laughs> so like says he rose he, you know he's he's he thinks that like in his head he's having these interactions with tattersail uh-huh it says he rose from his crouch at lauren's graveside look at me now agent for the adjunct once now a soldier, finally a soldier. Like, finally, he's a real boy, <laughs> you know? Um, and then in his mind, Tattersail says, then I shall await the coming of a soldier. Gross. <laughs> Why is that gross? Because Peron is engaging in two classic relationship faux pas. Oh, yeah. Long-distance relationships. Oh. And pedophilia. I... I don't, I don't classify what he's doing as pedophilia. (sighs) Isn't she like six years old? I think she's like 12 or 13 at this point, but her, she's kind of a magical, weird spirit being. And by the time he finds her, she's going to be like 20, 25. I get it, but it's still a little weird. He's not thinking like romantic thoughts toward a child. I mean, his age play fetish is fire. It's gross. No. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on. I don't know. I don't like it. No. And you and I had a long-distance relationship for like a year and a half, so. How did that pay off? (laughs) (laughs) Trapped in this basement with me. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready for listener interactions? Yes. All right, Gordon Ross says, would it be too much to ask for a quick recap of all the players, including their factions, objectives, loyalties, both as they stand at the start of the section and at the end of the book? Yes. Yes, yes. it would be. 
sorry. This podcast is already like three hours long. At this stage, it would be. <laughs> Alternately, could you just walk me very slowly and patiently through whatever, whatever the fuck Lauren is thinking? As far as I can tell, her every motivate her every move is insane and suicidal. Is that intentional? Yeah, I think I think she's losing her mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think so. And she and- wants out. And again, we see this character who keeps on ignoring her own conscience because it's easier and it's easier to absolve herself of responsibility for for what she's doing, um, but just digging her own grave deeper and deeper. And it is such a, a complicated feeling you end up having for this character. You know, because you you sympathize and you almost kind of identify with her sometimes, but then you also like, oh no, girl, yeah, what is you doing? On Twitter, uh, Rodrigo Verandas says, "I'm eighty percent of the way through Oathbringer, and your company while reading Stormlight, and it's going to be a lot less funny reading Rhythms of War without the podcast. Um, but finishing, but after finishing the Cosmere, I'm coming along to read uh, Malazan with you." So thank you. We look forward to having you uh, when you finish Rhythm War. Don't be in a hurry. You can read some other books before you start this. You'll catch up fast. Eric Allgaier says, Gordon Ross stole my question. I was hoping for one of the Duchess's famous one-minute recaps. A chart might help. You know, that would have helped. I mean, maybe. Maybe. Chris Detmer says, my first up-to-date episode, it took me about a year to make it through all of your episodes. Well, welcome to 2021. Was it everything you thought it would be? (laughs) Now you get to wait the long weeks in between episodes like everyone else. Why were you in such a hurry? I don't understand. (laughs) Don't you know what this means now? Zach Setzer says, I find it kind of difficult to discern the different uh-oh levels from all the different major villains and monsters up to this point. <laughs> yes, exactly what we were saying. Yeah, again. Yeah. It seems when the characters talk about or encounter each new major threat, we are led to think, oh man, everybody is <sighs> definitely going to die. Everyone's going to die now. <laughs> Only for that villain to be defeated, a new villain to be introduced later. And Two I days can't later. get a bead on who's the baddiest baddie so far. Can you give us your power rankings for this book? <laughs> Hopefully in book two, the characters will start we- wearing Dragon Ball Z scouters on their faces and yelling, it's over 9,000. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Yes. I mean, definitely lots of bad baddies. I would say at this point of the surviving characters, Anamander Rake is still way up there with Caladan Brood. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have to... I would have to agree with that power ranking at this point. It's Andamanda Rake slightly above Caladan, but Caladan Brood maybe, but we just don't know enough about we him. We don't know to, enough about him. Yeah. To say yeah. Theo Graham Brown says, yeah. "Does Brood sense a kinship? Oh, does Rude? Sorry, does Rude the the Hound sense a kinship because Paran touched the dead Hound's blood to travel to them, or because Paran saved the Hounds? If the latter, it does seem odd that Paran seems to decide not to tell what he did. Yes, I do believe it's the blood. Yeah, I think so like too. Physical contact with the blood. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. Also, that it seems weird that he didn't. He was like, but it's such a Paran thing to do, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I guess. Like, it, I could yeah. tell you this thing that would make you have sympathy for me, but I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. Calvin Wallace says, did you expect Quick Ben to have that high of a level of power? 
or Krupp for that matter. Um, not so much with Quick Ben, although, I mean, I do have to say, when Tattersail first meets Quick yes. Ben, she's like, whoa, this dude's powerful. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's set up. Yeah. I feel like Krupp, I did feel like, was going to have that much power, though. What I think was a little bit more shocking was for Krupp to have that much of a, like, that much, that many resources, like, to have that much cash and that much, like, political clout. That was a little bit more of a... Uh, of a shock, I think. Mm-hmm. Sam Wilkinson says, currently working my way through the expanse. Ooh, nice. And rereading Superpowered. So then I'll catch up with you guys on Gardens of the Moon. Well, take your time. Yeah. No reason to we be are, in a We're hurry. not going at a lightning pace, unfortunately, <laughs> that we first started with when we started this podcast four years ago. And life was so simple. Kids went to bed at nine o'clock. I know, right? Crazy times. Eric Allgaier says, is Dragon Form a special power granted to followers of the Kurald Ghislaine Warren? If so, can all of the Tysandi turn into dragons or just Salamander Snake? Does it have something to do with his sword Dragnipper? <laughs> You're chuckling over that. That's a good one. Is it like the Freemasons where you need a referral from another dragon to join the club? What's the deal? <laughs> you got to go into a room. Nobody's allowed to talk about it. I, I don't think we know at this point. No, I mean, you know, what you said about soul taken being mm-hmm. a factor. But um, but again, what you know, what that actually means, I, I definitely don't know. Trey Watanabe says, if you could be entered into the deck of dragons, where would you place yourself? That is a good question. I don't. Do you want me to read you a little bit about the houses of the fatigue from the sure. appendix? Okay, so the deck of dragons has the following houses: high house life, high house death. I know where I'm going so far. High house light, <laughs> high house dark. High House Shadow, and the Unaligned House, which includes Opon, Obelisk, also known as Burn, the Crown, mm. the Scepter, the Orb, and the Throne. I, I mean, I got to go with High House Life, I'm going to say. It sounds safer. Um, I like the Queen is called the Queen of Dreams. She sounds pretty cool. I think I'm the Orb of Chads. The Orb of Chads. I, oh my gosh. I think I'm the roundest of the chads. That sounds funny because uh, Theo Graham Brown, after that, says, forget it. I'm going to create a deck of chads for my next <laughs> D&D campaign. So that is a really good question. There's I a would lot say, of different types of chads out there. It's true. We're not, a mo- we're not a monolith. <laughs> the chads are not a monolith. Um, yeah. Chime in and, and tell us, where would you put yourself on the deck of dragons? So Jeremy Boyle posted, um, not a question, but a response to the question of when the world story um, of Malazan starts to make more sense. And um, he wrote a really good, long explanation. So I would encourage everyone to, um, you know, check out on the Facebook group page if you want to know more about that. But basically, he says, uh, keep reading for the first three and four books. Really, by book five, you kind of have at least been introduced to all of the continents. And that just gives you an idea of the scope of, and I wish that I had known that going into this series, that it was going to be a constant introduction of new, new characters. That's not something you usually get. So definitely the first time that I picked up Deadhouse Gates and got like three quarters of the way through it, I was like, 
the fuck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> Where are all Where's Peron? Where's Where are all the yeah. old characters? It's crazy. But knowing that they do come back around and the, and the threads do get tied up at the end um, is helpful. But- so uh, not in the same thread, but I thought it was um, worth mentioning because somebody reached out to me by messenger and I just, uh, when we were asking these questions and I just hadn't had a chance to get back to him. Um, but Christian Prater uh, put a post on the, on the Facebook page uh, when we put up this question and he said, I can think of one reason why having an Imperial Warren bus stop in the throne room and why it's such a, such a good idea. So theoretically, the only people who can use it are people in the claw or people working or, or, or the Empress herself. So if that's reasonably certain, then that means that they can protect Lacine, getting her in and out of uh, danger mm-hmm. very, very quickly, which mm-hmm. is some, something I definitely had not thought about. I think at the point when I was introduced and we were all introduced to the concept of a Warren, I mean, it was right before we walked into the throne room. We had people just sort of like seeing it and stepping into it. You know, we, you know, we, we weren't really, you know, we didn't know what the authentication techniques for the Warren mm-hmm. system are. Or how, you know, how much cybersecurity is there around this Warren? We, we really didn't, you know, know or have any sense of that. So, mm-hmm. um, which is why I was, you know, asking the question, is this a good idea? Seems like it might not be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So. But that's a good explanation. Brian McClure says, who's a better sidekick, a giant magical raven or tool? I, I mean, tool's a lot more fun to talk to. I, I or, definitely. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Crone's a lot more fun to talk to. Tool is not good company. He's not, but Crone doesn't seem to work in the best interest of anyone. No, but Crone. But Crone. But you know that. And what Crone really wants is crazy shit to happen that's true she's bored like when that giant demon got released that it, it immediately attacked animator rake she's like yes i know she just laughed <laughs> she's like Mwah. i know that's true this is gonna be awesome some crows just want to watch the world burn <laughs> so i would pick tool at least I, I feel like he would have my back he wants to know what our favorite character or favorite character group is uh, i mean favorite character is uh Darudin. I was going to say Relic Nom. Uh, I mean, it's I, I don't know why. I can't explain it. I just like him. I, honestly, I think for me, it might be Lorne. Hmm. So far. I like Quick Ben, too. Mm-hmm. Um, in this book, I think it might be Lorne. And, I mean, sorry. Mm, Absalar is a good character. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Eric Fried says, what are some of your burning questions uh, that you hope the next book will answer. Wh- what happens to Whiskey Jack's legs? What happens t- to 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 um, what happens to Absalar and Crocus? And mm-hmm. you know, I know I'm not going to get the answer to those questions in the next book. You'll see. Ola Melamed says, hey, from Israel. Hello. Um, based on the book so far and my guess that no one really dies or disappears without at least the potential of resurrection, I want to know which characters you want or think are likely to come back. You know, it's funny because obviously we have the example of uh, Peron being resurrected. But I feel like that was such a singular event in the circumstances surrounding it were so incredibly outlandish. I really don't feel like 
I, you know, I don't feel like Lauren's going to make it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like she's coming back. Uh, you know, uh, Tattersail, I guess that's another example of somebody sort of shifting out at the last minute. But I, I really, I, I think Callow's dead. I think Hairlock could potentially come back around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely, so so that I think Hairlock could potentially show back up. Uh, and I also think um, the one-eyed dude who was following per- Piran around, mm-hmm. I definitely don't think he's dead. Right. But I think, like, in the case of characters like Lorne, mm-hmm. where, like, you see the body and mm-hmm. you see the life go out of their eyes, mm-hmm. I don't think they're coming back. Right. Pete Samhammer said, huge Malaz nerd here on my fourth read through the series. I found your podcast um, just as you started with Gardens, and I've been loving it. Erickson is a very thematic writer, so I was wondering if there are any themes that really stood out to you. And it continues to uh, to go on. It's a long long message. But as it relates to the idea of the themes, I really think the theme that I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, about, um, you know, the, the pursuit of power is entropic. It mm-hmm. corrupts everything and everybody in mm-hmm. its power. Bystanders, those seeking it, um, you know. And I, I think that the concept of the the need to control other people and this, you know, constant lust for war is never ending. I think, you know, I don't think it's a secret that Lorne begins to break down when she learns that this cycle of violence has been going on for three hundred thousand years. Mm-hmm. You know, from from a time before humans were even humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that that's sort of the central theme, I, th- I think. Yeah, and, and but there's also the theme of community. And what I love about, you know, you look at the Jagu, and the, here are people who won't even associate with each other because they're so afraid of having power over someone else, but that they eschew all of the the positive aspects of community. And we see these positive aspects in this little band of thieves and criminals in Darugistan, and we watch them support each other. And we see it in the bonds between the bridge burners and how it's, it's not just as simple as power is necessarily bad or good or you know blindly seeking it for the sake of power itself is bad um but you know to go the route of the jagu which would you know if you were going to absolutely have no power over anyone else ever that's the only way to do it is just completely isolate yourself you know and that's not necessarily a good thing either so i love that steven erickson really highlights the complexity and i love that he highlights you know the complexity of living with people in communities because again like we said the empire, of course, it's an evil empire because it's an empire, you know, but then the way the Darugistan is run is maybe not that much better because it's also kind of, it's being run by assassins, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no perfect form of government, at least that we've seen. No, but I definitely think Darugistan shows up as, you know, being sort of an independent city that yeah. is thrown off despots. It, I think it clearly stands out as being a, a better form of government, but right. it, it's clear that there's this very delicate balance that has to be struck. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I do agree that the theme of community is important because it's when you're sort of in this community and you have these lasting relationships that it's 
relationships. Like you think of Rolik Nam, who has a, you know, has a debt to Vorkan mm-hmm. and has um, an obligation to Vorkan, owes a debt to Baruch, you know, owes a debt to Krupp. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and all these ties of relationships make it make it very difficult for him to be able to be you know drawn into mm-hmm. a clear there is there aren't clear sides for him because mm-hmm. he's in community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I see um, as being all you know. I think those two things are definitely very clearly related. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think it's the sort of like seeking power for power's sake mm-hmm. that is evil. Um, obviously it is, but I think it's, I think it's, I think that's a little bit too simplistic. Um, when you look at sort of what's happening with the empire, it's this idea that if you're willing to, um, dominate people through war, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, building any sort of community, Mm -hmm. then your only recourse is to continue to dominate people through war. Like, there's a momentum there that can't be broken uh, because every time you subjugate these people, the only way, like she, she snatches up the seven cities and the only way to keep the seven cities from revolting is to take the forces from the seven cities Mm -hmm. and keep them constantly moving and fighting. That's the only way to do it, you know? And, and so this, this concept of war, you know, and military conflict just simply begets, more mil like right. it gets more military conflict. I think um, is a pretty powerful theme, and then contrasting it with the concept of community, mm-hmm. um, I think is a, is a good one as well. You know, and again, everybody who's I think there's a sort of not that there aren't good people um, who are wielding magic. There certainly are, but there's a again perhaps because of this threat of power, there's a, there's clearly a a real serious danger with magic, you know, Mm -hmm. um, in that you can easily get trapped up in that sort of fight for, um, you know, for power and control over a warren and, you know, by becoming more powerful, you, you, you know, you get closer to becoming one of the ascendants and, and every one of those are sort of nuts. Like it's, it doesn't it it's never like a good thing for them mm-hmm. like it always corrupts them uh right so now would be the time for predictions yes what do you think's gonna happen i don't really have any predictions so so the only thing that i do know about the next book is that it doesn't have any of the characters from i didn't this. say it doesn't have any of the characters it, it mostly doesn't have anything to do with the characters in this book so that's the only thing I know. So um, so knowing that makes it very difficult for me to be like, Whiskey Jack's going to do X. You know, <laughs> like I just, I don't know. The only real prediction I have is that I feel like we're going to hear about the events or the, the outcomes tied to what's going on here in other characters mm-hmm. in this other like we're going to hear about there being a, a debt we're going to hear about Rolik Nam and Vorkan mm-hmm. we're going to hear about um, this new lord you know um, who circle breaker we're going to hear about the echoes of these things in tiny subtle little ways mm-hmm. in the next book through the new characters that we meet that's my only real prediction I like it. That's all I got. 
Where can they find us? They can find us online at Twitter, on Twitter at uh, the DND podcast, excuse me, yeah, DND podcast, D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Uh, you can find us on our Facebook group page just by going on to Facebook and searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast group. Uh, really, if you search for the Duke, or Duke and Duchess, you can find us on all the social medias, Goodreads, Instagrams. Uh, we've got our own Reddit. Um, but the ones that, we are, that we're really active on are Facebook and Twitter. And uh, that's all I have. Do you have anything? That's it. Good all night, right. everybody. Good night, everybody. Remember, prologue and chapter one, Deadhouse Gates uh, for the next episode. Good night, all. Mm-hmm.